Park Cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. And also not that, too. My name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 51, Control, recorded on the first day of spring, March 20th, 2023. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like another continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible new album, Charlemagne, on Spotify or Bandcamp. I put links in the in the, uh, in the show notes. Today's intro, the song you were hearing, is called Shelter Dog, and our outro is Buzzsaw Party Boy. Boy, I love that outro. All right, I have some corrections. I made a few mistakes over the March break holiday when we went to New York City first. Turns out that there are three Broadways. There's East Broadway, Broadway, and West Broadway. And it's not fun to discover you've been walking for 30 minutes in the wrong direction on the wrong Broadway. The Intrepid is not the aircraft carrier that George Bush famously delivered the mission accomplished speech on. That was on the S-3B Viking Navy 1. Uh, not not the museum that we were at. And the American Museum of Natural History doesn't have a dodo. That's at the Oxford University. Though I understand the AMNH does have a skeleton of a dodo. But uh, we did not get to see that. Would have liked to. You don't get to see dodos very often. In dinosaur news, the first article today was published in Berlin's Museum of Nature's paleontological journal Fossil Record in February 2021 called Ornithischian Dinosaurs in Southeast Asia, a review with paleobiogeographic implications. This paper sort of digs into the origins of Ornithischians, which, if you recall, is a poorly understood era uh, in their in their evolution. The most fun theory so far is that the Silosaurid family tree of late Triassic animals were the ancestors of Ornithischians, but it's yet to be confirmed. While this paper considers the Asian origins of Ornithischians and admits the fossil record doesn't go back to the late Triassic, the first Ornithischians are some basal thyreophorans from China in the early Jurassic. Basal Neornithischians are reported from the Middle Jurassic in China and Russia, but in Southeast Asia, they are, quote, still obscure. And the late Jurassic Ornithischian faunas were dominated by stegosaurids, which is cool, and followed by basal Neo-Ornithischians, and fossils of these animals are found in Thailand. By the early Cretaceous, the Iguanodontian like animals grew terrifically in size and began to dominate the ecosystem, and several non-hedrosaurid iguanodontians are known from Thailand, Laos, and Malaysia. The basal neoceratopsians are known from South Korea, Thailand, and Laos as well. And by the late Cretaceous, although dinosaur diversity was doing incredible things, quote, no dinosaur bones of this age have been reported in Southeast Asia. Interesting, eh? In the late Cretaceous. So, this is an interesting observation that Ornithischian dinosaurs had trouble fossilizing in Southeast Asia, although Russia, Mang Mongolia, and China have loads of materials. The paper doesn't hypothesize why, but simply put the time in to make it a matter of record that something fishy might have been going on there during the late Cretaceous. The next paper today is from the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, published in February 2001, called Ontogeny and Variation in the Pachycephalosaurine Dinosaur Spherotholus Buckholtzae and its systematics within the genus. What a mouthful of a title. But that's how these papers go sometimes. Pachycephalosaurines are, as you may recall, the dome-headed bipedal guys that are always depicted ramming their skulls into each other. Well, many of these species of pachycephalosaurs are identified by bits of their strange, knobby, spiky, and bony craniums, which are fossilized. But the question is, are all these different strange bits of cranium from different animals? Or do their heads and spikes and domes change shape as they grow up into adults? Because if their skulls are changing significantly while they're developing into maturity, that could mean that 
the many different specimens identified as distinct species may actually be the same species from different ages. It's like when you have a baby's femur, a juvenile's femur, an adult's femur, and a geriatric femur, and name them all different species because they're all a little bit different. Well, they're only different because of age, not because of species. The paper says, quote, Pachycephalosaurid diversity in the Maastrichtian of North America is particularly controversial, and the validity and composition within the genus Spherotholus remains unresolved. And they've got three species of Spherotholus, the Goodwinai, Buckholtzae, and Edmontonensis. So this paper employed morphometrics, histology, and phylogenetic analysis to resolve these issues. So it says, Spherotholus derives its name from Spharia, which is Greek for ball, and tholos, which is Greek for dome. And the first species described was Goodwinai for Mark Goodwin. So its name is ball dome for Mr. Goodwin. And the holotype is NMMNHP27403, housed at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History. And it was recovered from, or uncovered, from the Kirtland Formation. It's comprised of an incomplete skull, lacking the facial and palatal elements. And that formation is dated to the Campanian Age, and it was described in 2002. However... All of the known material of this Spherotholus buckholtzae, which the paper is about, is derived from the Tolman member of the Horseshoe Canyon Formation in Alberta, and is therefore in the earliest Maastrichtian age. And the authors studied 22 known uh, buckholtzae specimens consisting of partial to complete frontoparietals, as well as several isolated squamosals, which are, I guess, parts of their head. Their findings strengthen the understanding that, quote, Pachycephalosaurus underwent extreme ontogenetic trajectories, and Spherotholus buckholtzae exhibits the characteristic doming of the frontoparietal, loss of tessered surface texture, rounding or blunting of the squamosal nodes, and decreased dome vascularity throughout ontogeny. You get all that? This suggests that the Hell Creek Formation, quote, harbored at least two contemporaneous genera of Pachycephalosaurids, each of markedly different body size. And it continues, as shown in preceding North American formations and in Asia, pachycephalosaurs exhibit a surprising degree of diversity. Therefore, a single genus within a formation, such as Spherotholus edmontonensis, within the Horseshoe Canyon formation, could be more anomalous. And also, resulting from this paper, they have some really slick 3D models of the skulls uh, for the first time, so that people will be able to study these in 3D, which is really cool. It helps things a lot. Uh, okay, with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Joining me today is Lindsay Kinsella, who is a Scottish writer and author of the science fiction novel The Lazarus Taxa. And while a qualified and experienced naval architect and an avid classic car enthusiast, he has always reserved space in his life for his deep fascination with paleontology. This drove his writing process as he aspired to write tales of the rich and complex history of life on Earth. Thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have somebody with a Scottish accent. This is exciting for me. <laughs> it's very. I'm sure it's very daily for you, but it's... Uh... It's special over here. <laughs> um, so Lindsay and I met when uh, we both wound up lost in a Where's Waldo book, and I couldn't find him for the longest damn time. And we were in a movie studio with about like 500 other people, all doing ridiculous things and causing trouble in a hilarious tableau. And uh, I could find Wilma, I could find Woof, and I could find the wizard. And I could even find Oddlaw, but I could not find Lindsay. And at the end, uh, when my son pointed you out, all there was was uh, like a piece of your hat that was visible. So that, that was... Um, it's challenging, but uh, anyhow, I'm glad that we were able to find each other without too much trouble. So thanks. Do you guys have Where's Waldo in Scotland? Curiously, we do, but we call it Where's Wally. I wondered I'm about not sure that. Why it's different? Me neither. So like the 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 villain, the, the yellow colored guy, is Oddlaw, which is Waldo backwards. Do they? What do they call Oddlaw in in UK versions? You know, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's it's interesting how international audiences, when you go to market things beyond a certain territory, that they go and change things. I literally just last night saw that Encino Man, the Brendan Fraser movie and Pauly Shore movie from uh, the 90s, is called California Man on the Disney Plus streaming service. And I guess it's because, I don't know, California is more relatable than Encino is, but interesting stuff. I think Zootopia is called Zootropolis now on the streaming services. It's just somebody's decided these international uh, markets need... Uh, different words to get them to, to even look at the title of something. So that's strange. <laughs> as a strange one, I don't understand it. Yeah, as as Zootropolis over here, and then I think Harry Potter's the other one over here. It's the Philosopher's Stone. I think it's Sorcerer's Stone. Oh yeah. Over on your end. Yeah, someone somewhere in a studio decides that things should be different elsewhere. I don't know who or why. To be honest, it's strange and. um I know I've heard that like sometimes book titles have to get changed. In the latest one, there was a um, there was a, a documentary on the Tannis site, which was about I think it was called like Dinosaurs: The Last Day. In the UK, it was released a couple weeks before it was released in America on PBS. But here, it couldn't be called Dinosaurs: The Last Day. It had to be called Dinosaur Apocalypse, or else somebody was going to watch it. <laughs> so, so I don't know what goes into those decisions, but I, I'm, you notice them. That's for sure. That's a great documentary, by the way. It was very interesting. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Lots of interesting things um, on that tennis site. One of my prized possessions is a is a, a replica of the Utah, the Utah Raptor claw. Yeah. Which uh, was sent to me by um, Robert De Palma, who was the main guy in that documentary. He sent, he sent me an actual replica. Oh, of, a replica. Of the Raptor claw. Um, oh. He sent it in, in exchange for a copy of my book. I, I sent him a. We did a swap. Okay, that's really cool. I was hearing it's so big that it was considered that it was possible that it was even a rib. That's how big this thing is. Would you? Does that hold up? It's, yes, it's a it's a big old claw. I sometimes chase the kids with it and misbehave. Yeah. All right then. So um, uh, let's start off with. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the the Lazarus Taxa is and uh, what people could expect if they were to go looking for that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Lazarus Taxa um follows what is effectively the first scientific expedition through time, um, and we we follow our cast of four characters as they travel back to the late Cretaceous. And it's, it's, it's sort of a, a story about kind of isolation and, and survival. Um, being the early days of time travel, it's, it's not user-friendly. So it takes six months before they can travel back again. Mm. And it's, it's really following the story of how they sort of survive and how they learn to, to trust each other and, and, and learn to... to you know, rely on one another for that survival whilst being surrounded by, you know, late Cretaceous North American dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. I, when you're writing, I know that you have to enter into like an imaginative space and, uh, and you have to try to, you know, live in the mind of the characters and see the world through their eyes as you're trying to develop what you put on the page. What was the imaginative exercise like to to put yourself in their shoes as you're fleshing out the world around them and things like that? How did you put your head in that space? It, it was sort of an evolving process, to sure. be honest. And, and I mean, this being my first book, um, probably more so than... than any others that are right going forward, I, I think that you, what, what I find myself doing is that I would run through the book with the mindset of, of one character mm-hmm. and then I would sort of start from, from page one again and, and completely reset because when, when you find yourself jumping from character to character, mm-hmm. it does become difficult to, to change those viewpoints, change personalities, but if you get yourself into that mindset for an entire draft of the book, 
it's time consuming, but that was sort of my process. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate that. And it's, uh, it's so immersive as well. Like once you get in there, distractions really, really hold you up from doing that. You kind of really need some space for yourself to, to get in there, I think. And uh, I can only imagine what it's like to be in a whole new world where like nothing is familiar in a way. Yeah, that was that was probably one of one of the areas that required the most research. If you if you like, mm. um, you know, a lot of dinosaurs and animals. Being a kind of lifelong dinosaur geek, for lack of a better description, a lot of it I, I sort of had a feel for. But you know, little things like like what what was the environment like? What kind of temperature were you talking? What what was the plant life like you know that, that was all things that I had to had to research and yeah it's, it's 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 difficult to to create this world because it wasn't a world that i could just invent mm-hmm. it did exist at one point and it, it i had to find out what it was and i'm you know i'm, I'm under no illusions that i'll have uh, got a few things wrong here and there but yeah it was it was quite an intensive research projects to get there Mm -hmm. it'd be fascinating to have one of your characters go back and be like allergic to things and discover only (laughs) only once too late like oh no i'm allergic to everything here (laughs) their nose is just running they're like oh why didn't i expect this (laughs) Uh, but yeah yeah all sorts of things could happen just crazy that wouldn't be a very good story just somebody with a stuffy nose all day but (laughs) (laughs) i I think something similar was the fact that the the days are ever so slightly shorter okay back in the cretaceous by you know by a couple of hours i think 22 hour days so you you do get this sort of almost jet lag from you know just your circadian rhythm being Mm -hmm. thrown out that was that was that was the sort of equivalent that i thought of yeah, that's so strange. So this podcast is all about um, another book about dinosaurs called Jurassic Park. Did it serve as an influence for you at all? Do you have any uh, particular relationship or, or, or anything like that with Jurassic Park or the films or the expanded franchise? What, uh, you know, how, how has it touched your life? I, I think it, it sort of inevitably did in, mm-hmm. a, in a number of ways. Um, I think in, in terms of direct influence on the book, I think the biggest impact that Jurassic Park had was a sort of sort of opposite influence where occasionally there would be something that would come up and I would think to myself, what did Jurassic Park do? And that's an end made sure that I did the opposite of that because you really have to make sure that it doesn't just come across as copying Michael Crichton's homework, mm-hmm. you know? So in that sense, it was, it was almost a blueprint on what not to do. Not because there was anything wrong with it, just because it's been done, mm-hmm. you know? But I think in a broader sense, you know, I mean, I, I think Jurassic Park, the, the the movie, the original movie, was one of the first movies when I was a kid that I can remember being obsessed with. Yeah. So, you know, does does the 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 inherent fascination with dinosaurs, which led to me writing this book in the first place, stem from Jurassic Park? I think there's a strong argument that it does. <laughs> sure. And and yeah, and then I think reading the book slightly later in life, I, I think I was, I think quite a lot of people do it in that order actually. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike probably a lot of other franchises that I watched the movie and then later in life read the book. And and yeah, I think I think a lot of that sort of dark horror element that the book really incorporates that maybe the movie doesn't so much was somewhat of an influence in my writing style. And I think the, the thing that I always really kind of appreciated with Crichton was his, his process behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. More than almost any other author I can think of, 
he did his research really heavily. I think for Congo, I'm, I'm sure I heard he flew to Africa <laughs> to research for Congo. Uh, you know, I, I kind of sort of wanted to not necessarily emulate, but if I could even come close to that sort of dedication to mm-hmm. the project, that I would be quite happy with that. Well, I guess you have to fly to like, yeah, the Lake Cretaceous Mesozoic. There you go. <laughs> it's hard. <to>... Well, <laughs> that's really interesting. So uh, another interesting part about how Jurassic Park touches so many things is that the how they were depicted way back in 93 has kind of become the standard by which things are reproduced to begin with when they make a new documentary. It's like the starting place everyone starts with. You, we all have like a a culturally common reference. Ah, Tyrannosaurus looks like it did in Jurassic Park. And then from there they say, and we've learned since then, this is different. And Velociraptors are actually, you start with what you saw in Jurassic Park, we all have that common reference, and now we can explain more of what Velociraptor really means uh, <laughs> once we've dispelled sort of those myths. And so distancing yourself from some of the things that have been hyper-mediated through Jurassic Park is good. Even the Dilophosaurus, everywhere you go, still have those frills on their neck. And it was complete completely fabricated wonderfully and in, in imaginatively uh as a feature that would be on this Dilophosaurus to make it more interesting in the novel or in the film but it's not in the novel and but it's on everything since they're called spitters and there's no evidence that they ever did that but you're right maybe you want to venture away from that because not everything that they did is a true but b it, it's theirs and it kind of belongs to them too so that's interesting exactly and that's i think that's that's where i kind of look at with the a lot of kind of popular media at the moment when they include dinosaurs and 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 that can be you know whether it's movies or tv even things like video games and and comic books even Mm. um you you do see a lot of dinosaur designs which are effectively just kind of copy in jurassic park yeah yeah um which and, and you know sometimes that's even seeped into sort of educational settings i mean i was in a a museum a few years ago and they did a sort of special dinosaur exhibit and they had a frilled Dilophosaurus mm-hmm. there um, and it's, it's you know it's, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing for sort of teaching kids about dinosaurs because on the one hand would they ever have heard of a Dilophosaurus <laughs> otherwise quite possibly not it's a relatively obscure dinosaur but also it's sort of so deeply into the fabric of that animal yeah. that yeah, um, even in supposedly educational settings, that that design has has made its way through, and and so yeah, I think it's sort of a responsibility of any sort of popular media to be different. You know, it doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be accurate. It just mm. has to not be copy in Jurassic Park. Because as far as I'm concerned, mm. the frilled Dilophosaurus is as much sort of intellectual property of yeah whoever owns it, I don't know, Stan Winston Studios keep the intellectual property or not, but it's as much their property as, say, the Xenomorph alien design, mm-hmm, or the Predator mm-hmm. design. You can't just copy it, that's cheating. You yeah, know? So, yeah. Well, you make an excellent yeah. point, and I think one of the things that, uh, as, I, as I go through this book, and I watch it very closely, is that Crichton hasn't employed a lot of creative imagery when he comes to relate what things are like. And then oftentimes, he'll actually just turn into like a fairly common cliche and so his fascination is you know he does a great job with essay writing he does a great job making great arguments he has a great job of perhaps uh having malcolm elucidate things very clearly for the common person but when it comes to being like employing creative writing he's not he's not fabulous at it 
it is part of the author's job to do something creative, to do some imagination of their own and to build it out of their own or else you're right. You're just relying on old cliches. You're just hiding on that. And so, you know, good for you <laughs> to say, what can we do that's totally different and try and challenge yourself to do something creative? Because that's, I mean, as an exercise of trying to express a, a vision of yours to just say it's somebody else's vision with your characters. You're right. Unfair. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. And and the thing is, is that it's it's not even like it's especially difficult. I think to mm-hmm. be sort of different. Um, and and I think when it comes to dinosaur design, you you can go one of two ways. You you can take the same approach that Michael Crichton did in ninety one. I think he started writing in like eighty nine or something, where you you just heavily lean into the paleontology, which is what he did. And purely on the basis of the fact that, that it's moved on in thirty years, you end up with very different mm-hmm. dinosaurs and and the other way is you just go sort of the other direction and you do kind of what i think the new 65 movies done where you just go completely absurd kind of monster designs purely for the basis of looking cool and I, I think that either of those approaches is sort of acceptable really as long as it's not just the let's just do what jurassic park did mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can take either road, but just not that middle road. That, that middle road <laughs> should be off of, um, you know, out of bounds. Fair enough. So one of the things that the book uh, Jurassic Park brings up is is why are children so fascinated with dinosaurs? And so I've got somebody here who's been fascinated with dinosaurs since they were a child. What was it about... So he says that uh, in, in his hypothesis, as he's talking about uh, Tim and introducing us to, to Tim Murphy, that it's... Uh, this love of their parents and something that's bigger and more authoritative than that, something that has power and control over them. They're, it's their love for their parents that is emulated in this love for dinosaurs and respect, you know, admiring something that's sort of got authority over them or something they can't uh, equate to necessarily. And uh, a few of my guests have been like, well, that sounds like balderdash. Um, <laughs> and especially because Tim didn't even like his parents in this book. So it made me wonder, um, what is it to you that made dinosaurs so fascinating, something that you latched onto and, and didn't give up on uh, from your life? Yeah, I think I think my explanation is far less Freudian than uh, <laughs> things. But, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think for me, it, it sort of stemmed from a fascination with, with modern animals and with wildlife, where that in itself stemmed from. Who knows? But this this idea that you know the, the the ecosystem that we have today, the wildlife that we have today, is just you know a fraction of a percent of all of the ecosystems and all of the wildlife that's come before it, and and that sort of opened up this you know huge other worlds. I, th- I think that's that's really where it comes from. And and how did these animals? How how did they interact with one another? And how how did they? cause one another to to evolve differently and i mean we see throughout the course of if you look at dinosaurs and say the triassic even the early jurassic compared to dinosaurs in the late cretaceous i mean right away you can see there's a vast difference in size and, and you immediately start to think that well it was like a bit of an arms race going mm-hmm. on so then you've got the sort of evolutionary side of things which is equally fascinating you know and how, how these animals you know basically created each other yeah. by means of competition or even collaboration. Yeah, I wonder about that. I, I, I want to talk about that in a little bit for sure. Yeah, I actually just had a guest on and they were telling us, so he works in Utah and he says 
um, through the rocks and through the, their modern abilities with dating and how much more uh, accurate their, their, their dating systems are, there are 42 distinct different ecosystems that they've been able to identify. So it's just fascinating to think, you know, you don't just have your late Jurassic and your late Cretaceous or your early, like 42 different completely distinct ecosystems are, are captured in these rocks. And that's uh, and just in Utah. So which I said, you made Utah seem very exciting for a place that's known to be <laughs> perhaps not quite that exciting, but um, uh, fascinating stuff. And so you're, you're totally right. How do they all fit together? And when one moves out, what moves in? And, and we see that a little bit. One of the things that's challenging when you go, so I've aspired to write a, a dinosaur story too. When I was in grade two, I think I started one, and it was about a boy. He just goes through a cave. Other side of the cave is dinosaurs, and he just lives in that dinosaur world. But it, the real challenge with, with doing a, a viable novel or something like that is that you got to find a way to bring dinosaurs and people together. That That isn't easy. <laughs> and I, There's a couple different ways that people could do it. I thought there, there were a couple different avenues I thought of that uh, have been used before. So uh, some of the early ones were finding dinosaurs in some remote part of the world where they hadn't gone extinct. I think we've seen that one with the Lost World and things like that. There was uh, the Flintstones, where you just stick them together and say that cavemen and dinosaurs <laughs> live together. That's fine. Uh, there is Time Travel A, where you go back to dinosaur times, or Time Travel B, where dinosaurs come back to the present. <laughs> and then lately we have cloning. Cloning has been a big one. What else do we have here? There's the alternate history, I think, that goes, uh, like the good dinosaur that Pixar did, was uh, if the asteroid didn't strike, now dinosaurs and people can be together. I think 65. Yeah, I think, I think the likes of Dinotopia possibly falls into that category as well, doesn't it? <laughs> now, was 60. Did you see 65? I haven't watched this yet. I, I haven't yet. I haven't yet. I've seen the trailers. But it seems um, like there's space travel involved to get that one to work. <laughs> it's a relatively interesting original premise, actually. From, from what I can glean from it, is that Adam Driver's character is an alien who, just by sheer coincidence, happens to look like Adam Driver. <laughs> um who happened to land on Earth 65 million years ago, although we'll, we'll argue it should be 66, but anyway. Um, it's, it's a relatively kind of novel premise, actually. I, I quite like the originality behind that. That's, you know, you can pick holes in it if you want, mm -hmm. but it's, it's new and it's different, and I, I appreciate that. So when you went to bring your people on the first historical expedition into the past... How did you, how did you make that something viable? How is it set in present day or is it set in the near future? Or yeah, so it's it's set um, present day, and and the idea is that it's a sort of brand new technology, and and kind of they're still working out the kinks. Let's mm -hmm. just put it that way. It's this sort of you know beta testing phase of this technology, and you know as such, it's not. It's not especially user-friendly. It's not especially <laughs> reliable. I think what I really wanted to do is limit how useful time travel is. Because I'll be honest, and this probably sounds strange from someone who is on here because I wrote a novel about time travel, but I don't normally like time travel as a storytelling device. I mm. think it's often quite lazy. And it often just introduces um, a needless number of potential plot holes and pitfalls and it's, it's, so I, I really wanted to make sure that the time travel that I employed was you know difficult to use you couldn't just jump about modern day to the past willy-nilly mm -hmm. or replace you know the, the time machine takes many many months to um you know to recharge for another trip um to make sure that you know the reader can't be like well why didn't they just travel back in time and do this you know mm -hmm. it's not how it works and and then also thrown in that 
you know, the, the, the sort of time travel ethos is that when you travel back, it starts a new timeline. So there's no changing the present by changing the past because that just opens up a lot of can mm-hmm. worms. And that's not the story I wanted to write. I didn't want to write one of those sort of complex time travel stories full of, you know, wormholes and... <laughs> You know, you come back to the present and the Nazis won. You know, that's not the kind of thing yeah. I was looking to do. I just story. wanted a device that would get people into the Lake Cretaceous. And I wanted to tell the story, you know, sort of within the, the dinosaur natural environment. I wanted that to be the setting. Mm. And it just seemed like the most kind of logical way to get there. That's cool. I, and do you think I know that Crichton did the timeline novel? Did you read Timeline? I, I didn't actually, know. Oh, I recommend Timeline. It uh, He uses... I don't know if he has like hand waving quantum mechanics, <laughs> like, but uh, there's something no, about right. uh, quantum mechanics, and they can only wind up in one specific place or something like that. And it, as you described, there has to be some like restrictions, and so you can only travel back and forth so many times because as you are reconstituted upon the uh, arrival, you're reassembled uh, quantumly, uh, but not perfectly, and so you get these lags in your bones and stuff like that, and you become like twisted and mentally demented as you go. So there are these limits that he puts on it. It was, it was pretty neat. I like timeline a lot. It was one of the first books where you turn the page and you just see what's written on the next page and you stop and go, wow. <laughs> and I, yeah. it, that really impressed me. I like timeline a lot. That's, that's a great concept, actually. I will, I will add that to the, to the to be read pile. Well, I think. I don't think you'll regret I, it. I think also, I, I, it's, it's funny, despite being a huge fan of Jurassic Park, I would say, I, th- I think I've only read two Crichton novels. I read Jurassic Park and I read Congo. Those are good ones. Um, <laughs> well, I think Congo's under Congo gets a lot of hate. I think Congo's underrated. I think it's pretty good. I like. I was quite young when I read it. Maybe. Well, the movie was really. Maybe there's some rose-tinted glasses there. Maybe it's not as good as I remember. <laughs> um, people keep screaming at me that I have to read the Andromeda Strain. It's oh well, I'll get round to it. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> Well, whatever's up your alley, don't let people tell you Andromeda Strain is the one to read. It just it was everybody does seem to have read it, but <laughs> um, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, I always wondered about this this expanded Michael Crichton universe where you've got Congo and Sphere and Timeline and uh, and Jurassic Park, and they all kind of it'd just be a fun world where you could I don't know get a mutant dinosaur and send it back to medieval times through all of that and, and see what happens if you if you so choose and i think he kind of did like his stories were sort of like it felt like they're for like the comic book age kind of young readers you know generally a male audience yeah. they kind of felt like those kinds of adventures those pulpy adventures and so that was fine so one of the things so i the, the conceit i had that i had for this this story that i was have always been interested in telling is um uh it employs not quite a time travel but uh this concept of um bringing dinosaurs back uh out of the fossil record so it was this uh, this concept of somehow employing the powers that resurrected lazarus himself uh and somehow opening up a new plague upon the earth to cleanse the land this final plague that will get rid of all of the infidels or something like that by returning these these uh these dinosaurs out of their their fossil beds and stuff like that i thought that could be that was the, the world that i wanted to try and build but i've had a heck of a time trying to to you can paralyze yourself with research <laughs> you know what i mean and uh, definitely. and so but the interesting great part about that is, is that uh, the common theme there is Lazarus you, you when you pick a, a name like Lazarus Taxa you're employing uh, a lot of loaded meaning and mythology in the name Lazarus so um, in what ways were you 
evoking this Lazarus story into what you're doing. So, it, so the name didn't stem directly from the Lazarus story. Um, it was it was sort of a there's sort of a middle gap in there. Is that um, a Lazarus taxon is a a term used within paleontology or, or within biology in general, which in turn is, is influenced by the the Lazarus story, and it effectively just describes a species which either was discovered later in the fossil record than it was initially thought to be extinct, or in rare cases, discovered to be alive in the modern world mm-hmm. when it was once thought extinct. So the Lazarus taxa was sort of, it, it was just a good way, because the book lent so heavily into modern paleontology, to use a paleontological term as the title, but also something that kind of describes what happened in the book, because, I mean, without throwing any spoilers, one or two make it back to present day. Okay. And that, in effect, well, not in the traditional sense, those animals are in effect Lazarus taxa. They're animals which were extinct and are now alive and well in the present day. So it was more a scientific leaning than that sort of mythological, religious mm-hmm. one. But that's not to say that I didn't then lean into that a little. I mean, the, the company um, which sort of built the, the time travel, um, they were named Genesis, which again... Mm not an inherently religious word, but it certainly has connotations. Yeah. Um, and I did, it just added a little bit of grandiose to it, you know? I got it. And yes, Genesis is the beginning of all good things, isn't it? <laughs> all good things gone awry. <laughs> <laughs> How did I, it was the Hitchhiker's Guide, you know, after the creation myth, it was generally considered this was a bad idea. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I think Douglas Adams is certainly one of my favorite authors. Oh. Um, Satire at so, its greatest, yeah. yeah. So one of the dinosaurs that I have heard that is in this novel is the Leptoceratops. Is it a spoiler to, to talk a bit about what that character is like, if, if I understood correctly what, uh, how the Leptoceratops is, is employed? Um, no, absolutely not. I don't okay. think that's, that's particularly spoiler-filled <laughs> at all. The, the, the Leptoceratops is called Lazarus, which... Um, I think the title came first and then I backtracked and decided oh, that's a good name for the dinosaur actually <laughs> yeah it was it was an interesting sort of process to in, include Lazarus I think in the first draft of the book it was nothing more than a sort of passing scene you know it was just something to prove to the main character that you know that it was real you know he would go into the room and they had a dinosaur in this cage to sort of say you know show look we're not lying to you mm-hmm. we did we did bring a dinosaur back in time, and and then as as the draft progressed, I thought you know there's there's there's, there's more that could be done with this. Um, it could be more interesting, and Lazarus became a sort of character in his own right. And I think the, the decision to make him a Leptoceratops was was based on a sort of desire to bring something new to the reader, mm-hmm. because a lot of animals in this book, which the reader will already know about. I couldn't do a Lake Cretaceous and not have a, a T-Rex in there at some point. I think it's sort of reimagined from what people think they know. But, you know, there are animals in there that they know. There's a T-Rex, there's, a, there's an Ankylosaurus. Um, there are raptors of various descriptions, albeit species that maybe people aren't familiar with. But I thought I want to show that there's more than just the kind of pop culture dinosaurs mm-hmm. out there. And Leptoceratops was just, just so weird... And I love that about it. It's such mm-hmm. a strange little animal. It's like, 
as a ceratopsy and it's it's relatively related to something like triceratops but you wouldn't know it looking at it um it's this bizarre little creature that has tiny short little front legs and really tall back legs and, and big quills coming out of its tail it's just an odd thing um and i, I just I, I wanted to bring a little bit of weirdness to it mm-hmm. to me it feels like a, intuitively a very good companion critter and I know that I've done some artwork and things like that where um, <clears throat> if it's, you know, I had like a, a comic where, where it was kind of like Planet of the Apes. They go into space. When they come back, the world's all different. And uh, and this is uh, – I, I haven't read Planet of the Apes, but I'd love to. But anyhow, there's uh, Leptoceratops in the background, and the, the little girl is like training it and so she can ride it and stuff like that. And uh, it intuitively just feels like the kind of dinosaur you want to hang around with. The other ones you don't know. <laughs> they're too big. They eat too much. They, yeah. They're too dangerous. Leptoceratops feels like a real good choice. <laughs> And uh, he's easy. And so I'll, I'll write down like joke ideas all the time. And I had this one that I was sitting on for, I would say, years. And it was um, Leptoceratops sounds like Kleptoceratops. Wouldn't it be funny if one was just a, a thief or something like that? But I could, <laughs> couldn't for the life of me think of how to, uh, how to half the joke is expressing it properly. It had the hardest time. But it was, it's so coincidental that, uh, that, that this is coming together because it was like... <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting down with uh, one of my boys to do some artwork, and uh, we just drew up some comics. And the Leptoceratops and Kleptoceratops is pretty funny. I <laughs> turned out pretty good. And he's stealing a dude's wallet. <laughs> I think I, I think I might have I think I might have saw that little comic. I think I might have shared it on my Facebook page actually. Well, that's too funny. Well, Leptoceratops is a great dinosaur, <laughs> even if it does take your stuff. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so. so uh, how do you, when you get into the behavior of a, of, a, of a dinosaur that's going to kind of be a team member, how did you, did you envision how it relates to them? Why would it become um, endeared to your heroes? What, uh, what sort of things go into imagining the, what, how a dinosaur actually behaves? That was quite a tricky one. Yeah. I mean, a dinosaur behavior in general throughout the book is something that was quite difficult to do. But with Leptoceratops, it was, you know, you, you need for it to become this sort of companion which mm. it ended up being um you need a certain level of intelligence but equally it's a reptilian herbivore which are let's be honest notoriously stupid animals <laughs> um so it had to sort of balance that you know it couldn't be sort of problem solving intelligent you know it had to have you know base level of intelligence and, and just kind of mindlessly follow along so i think the idea is that it behaved more like a herd animal in the sense that, you know, in the absence of other members of his own species, it would just kind of naturally bond with whoever was closest to it, which mm. in this instance was the character Diane, who's the, the paleontologist of the story. And and yeah, so there was this idea that it's just a sort of natural bond forms between those two, because it has to, because it has this instinct mm. to bond with someone. So yeah, and, and I think the other thing that I really want to try and make sure is that just because... It's a herbivore, and just because it has this sort of bond, it doesn't mean that it's safe. It doesn't mean that it's docile. Mm-hmm. You know, Lazarus is still very much a wild animal, and a wild animal who's been whipped out of his own time and, and is, is fairly, you know, disorientated. So he's, you know, he's he's a bit cranky <laughs> at times, um, and and there's there's very much a point made that you know just because he doesn't have sharp teeth doesn't mean that he won't some damage you know he's got an incredibly strong bite force on his beak which 
is something that's kind of backed up by the by the science. I think Ceratopsians had enormously strong bite forces. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, getting into the yeah the behavior of dinosaurs, it's so such an interesting imaginative exercise. I know when Crichton puts his book together, he uses a lot of mammalian analogs. He wants his uh, his dinosaurs. He refers to maybe it's, it is a good piece of imagery to, to say to a to a, a reader like you or I, hey, these dinosaurs are similar to animals you are familiar with to relate like what they might be like, but. It's not. It seems to be missing the the part where like they're completely alien animals, and he makes point to mention that in the book a couple times. Like we had, we don't know anything about these things. They could do anything. We just don't understand. But um, yeah, I think. But he did start with. I think he, he was very clear about how like the rhinoceros and triceratops are very similar. He goes on to describe how like their mouth is very similar. He describes how the apatosaurus uses a lot of elephant imagery. With the myosaurus, he uses cow imagery. The stegosaurus, he says, is like a big dumb horse, and on and on and on. Uh, I think he calls the othnelia being like kangaroos. The velociraptors here, I have a whole list of them, are, are like cheetahs. They run like cheetahs, and they strike like a mongoose. Uh, the tyrannosaurus scratches behind its ear like a dog. And I think when the juvenile attacks Ed Regis, it's given a lot of puppy imagery, like it's a young dog being playful almost. Yeah. Um, what else we hear? They're described as being the size of a house cat in some instances, sometimes like a small pony. I think the baby Triceratops is described as like a pig, and I think it's pink. Um, so he does that quite a bit. But then when he gets into the raptors, at the beginning of the book, he has this epigraph about how really awful that reptiles are. And there's this whole list of reasons why... We, people abhor reptiles and so he makes sure that yeah. when he describes the raptors that he's he's trying to use as much of that reptilian imagery but then he does some neat bird stuff and i think this is where things get really interesting because if you when you want to think about like, what is a theropod doing switching into what birds might be doing and then trying to extrapolate that out into multiple ton birds is <laughs> again challenging but a neat way to look at things he kind of describes the the velociraptors like a cassowary he says that rex ducks its head in the pond to catch fish like a bird although he didn't say what kind of bird that would affect it very much and there's a couple times where the tyrannosaur is looking at people and it first looks with one eye and then looks with another now i don't know in scotland do you guys have robins we do yes okay well then, so like a robin's always looking for worms, and some they'll have their one eye looking at the ground, <laughs> and then they'll look at the other eye, and somehow by doing that they can see worms in the ground, which <laughs> I don't know how that works. But the tyrannosaur doesn't have an eye on either side of the head. But I do like that Crichton tried to employ that like how a bird looks at things and put that into his dinosaur. So there's a lot of neat stuff there. But the physiology of a dinosaur is so different from a bird. It's so different from everything we got. We don't have bipedal animals like like a dinosaur at all. Like, the kangaroo's kind of there, and that's it. We don't have bipedal things with great big tails. We don't, like... And we certainly don't have birds with huge teeth. So how to incorporate these big, big features, obviously important features that are in a dinosaur's anatomy, and converting that into what they're doing? Did you did you find a struggle there? or did you, How did you make sense of what to do with these dinosaurs and all their parts? Yeah, it is something that's very difficult. And I mean, you know, when it comes to describing how a dinosaur looks, you can you can just look at the paleontology and, and see what it says with fossil evidence. When it comes to behaviour, it is so much more difficult. There are some mm -hmm. things that we know, some things that we think we know, but it, it is tricky. I, I think that at the time Crichton wrote Jurassic Park, dinosaurs were still seen very much as sort of big dumb lizards. You know, that was still the kind of popular imagery of a dinosaur. 
And so he, I think quite rightly for the time, he leaned very heavily into the bird aspect, mm -hmm. which I think is, I think was the, the right thing to do, to be honest. That was, that was the new thing in paleontology. That was the new thing that he had to, to show off. But you're right that it's very difficult to compare it to anything modern because the way I say it, when, you, when you're looking at an extinct animal, you have two things that you compare it to. You can compare it to its closest modern living relatives, which in the case of the dinosaurs is birds and crocodiles. Mm -hmm. And you can compare it to animals which fill the same ecological niche in modern day, which more often than not are sort of large mammals these mm -hmm. days. And then you have to contend with how different those three groups of animals are. You know, what is something, when you combine a, a crocodile, a bird and a, a tiger, for instance, what do you end up with there? Um, <laughs> it's very difficult to, yeah. to, to try and glean those behavioural traits. Um, I think the main thing when it came to behaviour, what I really wanted to do is try and dispel some old tropes as much as possible. So one of the big ones for me was the, the sort of friendly herbivore trope that mm -hmm. we have. Um, I wanted to make it very clear that, you know, just because it doesn't want to eat you doesn't mean that it doesn't want you dead. <laughs> yes, that's quite often the case with a lot of modern herbivores. I mean, I think hippos kill more people every year than, than any other animal in Africa. You know, you, you look at things like bison and bulls and, and, and rhinos, you know, they're incredibly aggressive animals just because they don't eat you after they're finished with you doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they'll just leave you alone. So that was one of the tropes, you know, try and bring in herbivorous dinosaurs as antagonists rather than just always using the carnivores. Um, and then equally the opposite was, you know, we have sort of the opposite trope with carnivores, that they're just sort of mindless killing machines. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to make sure that when I was dealing with the carnivores, I was thinking, you know, what is their motivation? And I, I didn't really want their motivation, at least not very often, to be food. Because mm. that's just quite unimaginative to me. It's just sort of been that. So there were sort of, you know, territorial thoughts in there. There were, you know, there's an instance where they're, you know, defending their young um, and, and where food does become the, the, the motivating factor. Mm -hmm. I had to make sure that there was logic behind that. So perhaps it's an animal that was, you know, kept captive and starved for a certain amount of time. Because you find with modern predators too, we're not their food source. We're not what they're used to hunting, so they usually won't hunt us. There are very few predators which will actively hunt humans, so they need a very strong motivation to do so. Mm -hmm. I think too, we've got very little examples of such long tails on things that's got to play a role i know you were talking before about how like the, the ecosystem gives and takes that you kind of evolve together and when you're in a balanced world that the predator and prey relationship kind of fit together like puzzle pieces in that it, it's all tied together in a way and so one succeeds because they're in balance and that and it makes me think so when you're looking at the ecosystems we get uh, by the late cretaceous which is a great place to set a story in terms of uh, picking some dinosaurs because there's plenty of good dinosaurs to choose from. But by the late Cretaceous, we get dinosaurs that ram their heads 
or, or at least have developed a very strong necks and huge heads in the Ceratopsians. You get the ankylosaurs that have got the tail clubs, and we've seen that the stegosaurs had the tail thagomizes. And so we can infer possibly that evolutionarily, the and we get the pachycephalosaurs too that ram their heads into things. Maybe the, the early ornithischians must have been using these, you know, ramming their heads into things, using their tail as defense, and perhaps evolutionarily the evidence suggests that they would evolve. So it would be interesting to think how they'd be uh, using their tails. I know that the sauropods and especially some of the diplodocids, they'd uh, done some studies on like their their tail being like a whiplash, which is interesting. What if you, so when you, did you if you're North America, so did you restrict yourself to exclusively Lake Cretaceous North American animals? Um, so there is, there is a brief period where we look at, um, where there is a, a couple of chapters set in the Carboniferous. Okay. But, um, as, as far as dinosaurs go, yeah, it was restricted to Lake Cretaceous North America. Okay. So you, you wouldn't be worried too much about the sauropods then, but <laughs> but uh, there's so many interesting bits and pieces about the animals that uh, it's, it's so strange to think about how, how it all comes together. Yeah. Well, yeah, there, there was um, Alamosaurus was the, the sort of big sauropod around at that time and in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, it was sort of a, a fleeting moment where, where that particular animal was in the book. It's not a, it's not a major sort of impactful dinosaur mm-hmm. um but it was nice to sort of include it just for you know a bit of perspective really and, and show you know this is you know potentially the largest animal that's 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 ever walked um it's certainly close i know there's you know size estimates for titanosaurs in particular are all over the place and it's hard to know you know which was which was the biggest but it's up there, you know. Mm. That's it's about as big as life on land has, has ever gotten, and maybe ever will get. Who knows? So it was nice to include that there. Yeah, well, that's really neat. So the Lake Cretaceous in North America is a uh, a really good section of the the fossil record because it's some of the youngest rocks that dinosaurs are in. So that we, uh, we get the best. Uh, preserved specimens because they just happen to be only 60 million instead of 100 million years old so that 40 million years in the ground makes a difference in some respects it's also closer to the surface i think which helps uh, sometimes but uh we also get some of the coolest dinosaurs so all the ceratopsians are there uh did you play much with how many different types of uh ceratopsians you might put the strange skulls and stuff like that in i I didn't too much so there there aren't too many ceratopsians um there is a, a brief brief um Triceratops mention. I, I sort of tried to focus more on the animals which either would the reader maybe hadn't heard of, or that are significantly different from how the reader might have thought it. And that's the one thing about Ceratopsians is that we possibly because the fossil evidence was so good to begin with, mm-hmm. um, our understanding of Ceratopsians actually hasn't come on a huge amount <laughs> in the past few decades compared to other animals particularly compared with, you know, theropods and even things like ankylosaurs. I mean, we've, we've, our understanding of those has come on a long way, sauropods too. So the ceratopsians kind of fell down the priority list mm. purely on that basis. I felt I didn't really have too much new to say about them. So here's a, an interesting question that I've been trying to wrap my head around. When you're a dinosaur, you're a theropod, you're a carnivore, you're hunting, uh, you need to eat meat to live. What... What would you say the percentage of of uh, a dromaeosaur's diet would be based on dinosaur meat? Or, in other words, do you think that they're eating a lot of 
fish and bugs and rodents and and mammals and birds or do you think that they're they're actually praying they're picking dinosaurs and saying i'm going to eat dinosaurs today uh, all the time i i think it probably depends on the dromaeus oh, probably good answer. Some of the big ones like Dakota Raptor and, mm. and Utah Raptor are probably they were probably hunting hunting big animals. But I think for the majority of dromaeosaurs, and I think we, we we do have a few instances where we have stomach contents for for dromaeosaurs. Um, and I, I think what we what we tend to find is that mammals and and things like lizards mm. formed the, the majority of their diet, as far as we can tell. Which I do think is an interesting. I think that's something that we tend not to think about too much. I think when we think of even when we think about something like Velociraptor, we immediately think of, you know, Protoceratops mm -hmm. because we know that it did hunt them. But was that its predominant food source, or is mm -hmm. that just the famous fossil? Um, and yeah, I think it's it's sometimes easy to forget that dinosaurs were the only animals. You know. There were mammals, there were lizards, there were snakes. I mean, most of the animal groups that we know today were around in some form or another by the late Cretaceous. So it was a more varied ecosystem than I think we often mm -hmm. think of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I'd like to think that the bugs were plenty big to make a decent meal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, there's a brief scene in the book where, you know, they come across a snake Okay. And, you know, it, it was really there for, for no other reason than just to remind people that, you know, like, you know, snakes were around too. And, and there's sort of interesting questions around, you know, is it venomous? And oh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. You, you can never let's, know. Let's not find out. <laughs> you go find out and uh, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> That's too much. Well, yeah, I just, I do like to think about what they were really like. And, uh, and there's so many roadblocks. There's so many like, well, if this and then this and that. So imagine making a decision and making an informed decision. Again, the, the, the research can be just paralyzing. So I think one of the things that writers do that not a lot of people give them credit for is it's not that just only writers have a story in them. I think we all have a story in us. Uh, but writers get it done. They, <laughs> they they put it on the page. They do the editing. They do the manuscript. They do the printing. And uh, those are big steps that, uh, you know, you deserve a lot of credit for. Congratulations on that. Uh, so, oh, well, no, no, thank you. Um, I, I have the COVID lockdown to thank. It gave me a lot of free time. Did it. <laughs> That's excellent. So if people want to find the book, they want to order the book, uh, they want to learn more about what your next projects are going to be, uh, or they want to follow along and uh, and see what, uh, what you have to say on social media, where can they go to visit and follow along? Uh, yeah, so in terms of social media, I, I do most of my social media on Facebook. Um, my Facebook page is uh, Lindsay Kinsella, colon, the Lazarus Taxa. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, but they're sort of smaller platforms. Um, and for buying the book, it's, it's sort of available all the usual places that you would normally look online for a book. So it's on Amazon, it's on Kobo, it's on Barnes & Noble, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. How big is it? How many pages? Four four hundred and twenty seven pages, oh, and wow. I knew that exact number off the top of my head. That you know what I love that that it, uh, it's got some girth to it because you get to spend more time in that world. We we were talking with some friends uh, about Jurassic Park, and it's like if you really love the universe, if you love the experience, really the best place to spend your time getting more of it is going back to the novels and checking them out again because there's two of them. There's about you know eight hundred pages of, of material there. You get to spend a lot of time. In those worlds with the dinosaurs, 400-page book, man. There's a lot of good time. 
living in that world. That sounds, if we were only 200 pages, it'd be like less time. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that sounds excellent. That sounds really excellent. Well, I'm so glad you've uh, been able to to join me today and uh, thank you for reaching out and uh, wanting to be a part of this. Yeah, I, I hope people get a chance. If they're interested, check out that book. It sounds like a lot of fun. No, thank you so much. And, and again, thank you for having me. It's been it's, it's been good to, to just, just chat about, you know, dinosaurs and fun stuff and, and, and not the usual publishing stuff that I quite often have to chat about. Is that right? <laughs> thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate you coming out and... Uh, I'm going to check out the book. I can't wait to see it. Brilliant. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been good. I've enjoyed it. All right. A big thank you to Lindsay. Lindsay, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for writing about dinosaurs. I think that stuff's really cool. Uh, and this week's text is another chapter called Control, and it spans from pages 298 to 314. In a synopsis, while considering what to do with the tranquilized tyrannosaur and boasting that full control has been restored to Jurassic Park, the auxiliary power runs out. As the power goes out, the waterfall is halted, and the electric door separating Grant from the kids is unlocked and opened. And Arnold and Wu review the system printout and see that they've been running on auxiliary power since they reset the system back at 5.14 a.m. Characters, we have John Arnold. John Arnold grins as the Tyrannosaur is tranquilized. To him, the park is back in order, on page 298. This, to Arnold, is the, quote, final step in putting the park back in order, as, and he wants to stick Gennaro's face in it. He couldn't resist a moment of triumph, pointing out... The park is now completely back to normal, on page 299. He decries Malcolm's mathematical model and reaffirms we are completely under control again. Arnold is notified of the auxiliary power low signal that's blinking and isn't sure what it means, and he refers to Wu for advice. And then the lights shut off, leaving Arnold in shock, on page 300. Reading the printout, Arnold realizes that he had overlooked the normal system process of coming back online with auxiliary power, which was used to restore main power manually. It was his user error that's caused this second failure. The, quote, implications were just beginning to hit him. On page 302, he admits he missed the notifications and warnings that the electric fences have been off this whole time. Muldoon instructs Arnold to return power at the maintenance shed on page 303, and he'll join Arnold as protection. And Arnold makes it to the maintenance shed, but is confronted by three raptors almost immediately, and they back him against the wall, thwarting them off with a stick. Muldoon explodes one of the raptors, giving Arnold a chance to escape to the maintenance shed on page 304. Reaching the shed, he's terrified, dizzy with tension on 307. And it's too dark to see. He could have known the lights would be out. He searches in the dark like a blind man for the catwalk. He's clever and props open the shed door with his shoe so he can have some light as he's walking around. And just as he's about to reach the stairs, a velociraptor arrives on the scene. It stalks him on page 309. Arnold senses something is wrong with the raptor, perhaps the mechanical smells of oil in the shed. So while it's affected, he makes a burst for the stairs. Arnold believes the raptor is behaving cautiously because it's uncomfortable with the shed, perhaps influenced by the metallic grill of the flooring, and extrapolates that to believe that if the raptors hate the flooring, boy, they're really going to hate the steep, narrow stairs. I might even be safe if I can pull the stair put the stairs between us. It's a well-conceived plan uh, with the data that was available to him, but... Too bad, buddy, taunts Arnold once he escapes down the narrow stairway and believes he's found safety away from the raptor. Now we can just turn the power back on, but he still has to sense his way in the dark. Too bad, buddy, are Arnold's last words, unless you count the screams that was cut away from before we hear it. Too bad, buddy. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon has returned to the control room and is watching the monitors on 298. He's vindicated that he actually hit the Tyrannosaur with the Trank Dart after doubting himself earlier on 299. Muldoon believes the Big Rex is too tough to drown in the pool beneath the waterfalls. Muldoon must be a bit drunk, right? 
He's finished that bottle of whiskey earlier, recall. Now he's just saying whichever words come out of his mouth. Never seen an animal that was harder to kill, he says of the Tyrannosaur, though I don't think anyone has actually tried to kill it before. He's not enthusiastic about heading back into the park to move the animal back to its enclosure. Upon discovering the electric fences were not powered, Muldoon summarizes that concern. The electrified fences were off? All of them? Since five this morning? For the last five hours? Including the Velociraptor fences? On page 302. Upon hearing screams in the distance, knowing that the raptors are free, Muldoon instinctively takes charge, handing out portable radios, talking very fast and giving orders. On page 303. He orders Arnold to the maintenance shed to, to turn the power back on, and Wu to stay in control to work the computers. Don't argue with me. Go. Now. On page 303. Instructs Muldoon to Hammond. This is a life-or-death emergency, and he's taken charge. He's taken it as his duty to protect everyone from the raptors. He's going to act as an escort and protection for Arnold as he heads to the maintenance shed. Like to live dangerously again, he asks of Gennaro, who declines Muldoon's request, but Muldoon finds Gennaro tagging along, looking to offer help. Muldoon explains that their best bet is to try and blow the raptors up with their shoulder launcher. He gives Gennaro the shells on a belt, explaining that the raptors are too tough, the ribcage is too thick, their legs too hard to hit, their distributed nervous systems too unreliable. They can't be struck. They have to be exploded. They exit the visitor center and find Arnold fending off three raptors, so Muldoon takes a knee and commands Gennaro to load the rocket, which becomes loaded backwards on page 304. But they get it right. One raptor simply exploded, the upper part of the torso flying into the air, blood splattering like a burst tomato on the walls of the building. That's one down. Muldoon screams for, from a wrenching pain in his ankle, and he tumbles down an embankment, hitting the ground running from the raptors. He and Gennaro are split up, but the raptors were pursuing him. He's no idea where to run. He's got less than 10 seconds to find a hiding place. Muldoon is able to secure himself in a, quote, bloody pipe. We're told uh, it's a drainage pipe about a meter in diameter where the raptors can't reach him for now. On page 307, it's a tight fit for Muldoon and apparently too tight for the raptors. Muldoon inquires, and we discover all these raptor attacks have occurred over only three or four minutes on page 309, and Arnold should have had the power on by now. Muldoon and Wu are getting worried. Muldoon and Wu are still listening to the radio for updates from Gennaro, but not only is Gennaro failing at his mission, he apparently doesn't have his radio with him anyhow on page 311. Muldoon's new plan is to get everyone to regroup at the lodge and recall Wu is at control, Muldoon is in a pipe, etc., etc., but he wants everybody back to the lodge. Dr. Henry Wu. Wu is concerned that the big rex might drown while tranquilized at the foot of the waterfall on 299, and he reiterates that it's a very valuable animal and should be taken care of right away. Wu continues to be a sounding board and colleague that Arnold relies upon for second opinions and operational decision-making. When he can't make sense of the auxiliary power low signal, he confers with Wu to make sense of it on 299. Wu advises they print the system status log, and Arnold prints it out. He discovers a line in the printout concerning the containment fences on page 302, which, with Arnold turning the generators back on, Wu is the only one left who can operate the computers, and Muldoon instructs him to stay in the control room on page 303. As Muldoon starts firing the rocket launcher, Wu can hear the explosions from the control room. He's pacing the room, kinetically worrying about whether he should leave to help or, or stay behind. He knows he's the only one who can navigate the computer system to restore the security programming once the power is returned. He can hear screaming, and it sounds like Muldoon's voice. Later, Ian Malcolm makes an example of Wu, suggesting that as the creator of these clone dinosaurs, Wu doesn't even know their names, let alone, quote, be bothered with such details as what the thing is called, let alone what it is, on page 305. I don't know if this is a fair statement by Malcolm. I can find on page 111 that Wu is uncertain exactly how many different species of dinosaur they've bred, and he explains that at one point they believed they had more than 20 species, but because of failures in the DNA and their processes, not all species 
are viable, so the number fluctuates. That is explained. He has one moment where he says he doesn't keep track of the, all the names of, quote, something like 300 genera of dinosaurs known so far on page 107. But I can't quite recall a moment where Malcolm's accusation that Wu doesn't care what the animals are called occurs. It might be in this book, though I just haven't dug it out yet. And to be fair, though, Malcolm is fairly delirious in this moment, too. He's very injured and he's on morphine. Recall... He knew the difference between a Velociraptor mongoliensis and a Velociraptor anteropus in a conversation with Alan Grant on page 114. Wu knew that. Anyhow, while Arnold is out, Wu continues to pace and running his hands over the computer consoles as if he were sensing as soon as possible that the power is returning on 307 or 308. And he's, quote, frantic with tension and in constant movement. He runs over his next steps in his head to ensure preparedness and speed when the power returns, but is interrupted by the radio. Wu must want an update to, on Arnold's progress because he asks if he's got a radio, but Muldoon doesn't believe Arnold does. Wu is keeping track of time and is becoming worried that Arnold has failed to get the power on. Muldoon and Wu are still listening to the radio for updates from Gennaro. Wu wonders if he can drive the jeep to pick up Muldoon and help everyone regroup to get to the lodge. And Wu concedes without power, the control room is no practical place for him to help anyhow, so he's welcome to leave. That's on 312. Donald Gennaro! Arnold is gloating at Gennaro when he retorts in the best way he knows how. He asks a short question. What's that? He points out the, ne the next critical flaw that's going to plunge Jurassic Park into chaos. He notices, well, nobody else has, that the park has been operating on auxiliary power, and now that it's failing. Gennaro admits he doesn't feel like, quote, living dangerously again, and Muldoon sends him back to the lodge, to the lodge with Hammond on page 303, but no sooner does Muldoon set off to be the hero, Gennaro is in lockstep with him, knowing Muldoon is going to, quote, need help. Gennaro equips a thick webbed belt carrying the shells for the shoulder launcher, and he tags along with Muldoon. He's said to be, quote, puffing along as if he isn't in shape, but we know that he's muscular and stocky, and I guess he should have put in a bit more cardio at the gym. I've always read him as a bit of a tennis player, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, watching the Raptors perform a smooth, coordinated attack makes Gennaro shiver on page 304. It's their pack behavior, making them feel smarter and therefore more dangerous. They run from the Raptors getting split up, and the raptors pursue Muldoon, leaving Gennaro safe for now. Gennaro is on the party line radio discussion about what to do now that Arnold apparently hasn't succeeded turning the generators back on on page 309. Gennaro has cowboyed up and is heading for the ge generators to turn them back on himself on page 310. He's got regrets about taking this mission on, but he's got to get it done. He's seizing the moment. Another example of him taking some responsibility. The mission is life-threateningly dangerous, but he's devised a plan as he stalks through the foliage, because the generator building is between the raptor pen and the visitor compound, and he expects the raptors have all left the northern area and are down by the compound. So, if he were to stay north and reach the generator building from the backside, the northern side, he may get in undetected. His heart pounds. He's scared that he's making too much noise. He can't see six feet in front of him because the foliage is so thick, and he doesn't know if he's already even past the building or not. But he finds it. He sneaks in. He finds it very dark, and he trips on a man's shoe. Arnold's shoe. Gennaro, quote, props the door open wide, but we're not told how, as Arnold didn't do this and required a shoe. Uh, he sees the building is quite vast and that he doesn't know what to do, nor does he have a radio. He makes his way down the stairs, feeling his way along the pipes, searching for the generator in the dark. But the darkness snarls, and he's terrified of what's in there on 311. A raptor leaps upon him in the darkness. He struggles free and discovers the raptor is injured. He looks for a weapon, but loses track of the animal, which attacks him again out of the darkness, biting his hand. That's the last we hear about him. John Hammond. John Hammond is here, apparently. Muldoon instructs him to return to the lodge on page 303. Hammond whines, What are you going to do to my animals? And that he whines makes him all the more petulant and childish, selfish, and immature in our eyes. He's unfit for leadership. 
Hammond arrives at the lodge and goes to Malcolm's room, where he inquires about the mathematician's health on page 305, and he reports that the velociraptors have escaped, causing all the ruckus that can be heard over the radio. Hammond's mood swings, called emotional lability, uh, return as he goes from maudlin sentimentality, the raptors got out, to flaring anger. Go to hell, you supercilious bastard! From one moment to the next. Malcolm is evocative in this way. Hammond finally has a moment to go head-to-head with Malcolm. Quote, what we are attempting here is an extremely simple idea, he believes. He explains that everything they went through was very simple, and he can't imagine how it went wrong. And note, apparently, having $300 million makes things a lot more simple. Malcolm's ranting and raving goes over Hammond's head, but he specifically labels Hammond the worst type of offender. He hired scientists who were undisciplined in their pursuit of advancement, standing on the shoulders of giants. But Hammond is the one who buys the power, like a commodity with even less discipline, becoming the buyer who can't even conceive of the discipline that might be necessary, and of course, in this case, operated entirely without discipline in building Jurassic Park on page 307. Malcolm rants about the science's failure to make our dream of total control true, and the death of that dream here in this century, Hammond believes that he's being, quote, very extreme on page 312. Tim Murphy's in this chapter. He peers around the waterfall to peek at what the Tyrannosaur is doing now that it's let go of his head on page 299, and you can see that it's just sleeping on page 300, and you can see the white canister of tranquilizer sticking out behind its ear. Tim feels a bit bad for the Tyrannosaur seeing it being sedated and struggling to breathe. He can empathize that it was just doing what it's meant to do. It's not his fault, thinks Tim. Lex Murphy. Lex sees the sleeping big Rex, and she says she hopes it's dead on page 300. Lex is happy to see the Rex beaten. She's very vengeful. Dr. Alan Grant. He initially thinks the kids found a way to unlock the door, but they said the power went out. That's unimportant for now because he wants to show the kids what he's found on page 300. Dr. Ellie Sattler. Sattler is still humping care for Malcolm, aiding Harding and giving the patient morphine injections on page 305. When Malcolm gets animated in conversation with Hammond, Ellie tries to ease him back down, but Malcolm is defiant. As Malcolm rants and raves about the deplorable state of the scientific process and the lack of discipline among scientists, Hammond confesses that he doesn't understand, but Ellie nods, indicating she does understand. She heard Malcolm's arguments about thin intelligence in an earlier chapter, and has been wooed to Malcolm's perspective already on 307. Ellie is ushering people into the lodge, perhaps opening and sealing the gate behind them as they enter? Something like that on page 309. Two Tekken workers have arrived, but none for a while, and it sounds like things are quieting down. She's listening to what's going on via a radio handset. And as Malcolm labors through the pain, Ellie encourages him to relax, despite the disaster unfolding around them (laughs) on page 312. After his rant against science's failures and the ending of a scientific age, which has given us all power but no answer as to what to do with it, Ellie asks what he predicts will come next. Malcolm is still in great pain and receiving morphine injections on page 305. It seems he's growing weaker and weaker by the minute. Malcolm rejects the idea that they may be becoming delirious, stating that he is, quote, utterly clear. Malcolm asks a few questions about how the raptors escaped and can't resist saying, I told you so, which pisses Hammond off. Hammond tries to appeal to him, explain his vision, pleading his case that the park has gone out of control unexpectedly because the dream was so simple. It's notable Malcolm says, you're a bigger fool than I thought you were. And I thought you were a very substantial fool, on page 305. He hears the screams over the radio and is appalled with Hammond. Malcolm retorts that it was the dreamers who were simple, not the dream. Malcolm challenges, you create new life forms about which you know nothing at all. You create many of them in a very short time. You never learn anything about them, yet you expect them to do your bidding because you made them, and therefore you think you own them. You forget that they are alive. They have an intelligence of their own, and they may not do your bidding, and you forget how little you know about them, how impotent you are to do the things that you so frivolously call simple. Dear God. 
on page 305 and 306. Malcolm earlier in episode 49 Aviary described his interest in a complete new world order, that the hegemonic system of Western ideology is unprincipled and it needs to be changed for a new vision that's more in alignment with humanity as opposed to capital. And by extension, for the purposes of this novel, capital, which drives scientific development and research for the purposes of acquiring more capital. These notions were drawn out of his labeling of Wu and Arnold as thin-telligent engineers. And Malcolm is mincing even fewer words in this chapter, now in direct conversation with Hammond. You know what's wrong with scientific power? It's a form of inherited wealth. And you know what assholes congenitally rich people are? It never fails. On page 306. This imbalance of power and discipline is elaborated on. Later, Malcolm is soaked in sweat, listening to the radio on page 311. Malcolm is becoming sarcastic about everyone's planning and efforts to get the park back in control. He obviously feels that their efforts are in vain. Malcolm quips again, a control room without electricity isn't much of a control room, on page 312, in case anyone reading wasn't paying attention. <sighs> then he agrees with Muldoon, quote, no, this is not looking good. It's looking like a disaster. He's sort of reveling in his correctness. <laughs> the whole I told you so mentality, uh, he is not too modest to bring up. But Malcolm agrees, they'd all be better off together, even if Wu... Driving Muldoon and himself back to the lodge will attract all the raptors to their whereabouts. Malcolm is obviously laboring through the pain in this chapter as well. Dr. Harding. Harding administers morphine to Malcolm on page 305, and Harding believes Malcolm's status is, quote, holding, but, quote, a bit delirious. Tyrannosaurus. The big rex took about 30 minutes to feel the tranquilizer dosage, and though it's at risk of drowning, Muldoon believes the animal's too tough to die by drowning on page 299. So Muldoon is making the big rex out to be a splendid adversary in the park, and she has been, but recall too, we're told the Tyrannosaur hides and rarely comes out in full sunlight, possibly because she has sensitive skin and sunburns easily, which makes Grant sigh. You're destroying a lot of illusions on page 145. So the Big Rex has many sides in this novel. She's a well-rounded character. The Tyrannosaur sleeps on its side, floating in the pool of water on 299. And do you really think that she was floating? The tranquilizer canister can be seen sticking out behind her ear. We have Velociraptors. Muldoon tells us a bit more about the Velociraptors. Quote, they have destroyed distributed nervous systems. They don't die fast, even with a direct hit to the brain. On page 303. How do you like that? They're built solidly, thick ribs, slow bleeders. The best bet is to try and blow them apart, says Muldoon. They appear in a team of three to confront our heroes. And there are eight raptors in the fenced-in compound, but Muldoon only has six shells to blow them up with. The raptors fan out as they approach their prey, one in the center and the, two other, the other two moving to each side in a smooth, coordinated attack on page 304. In the generator shed, the raptors' claws click on the metal flooring, just like a cat on a hardwood floor clicks all over, like ours does. Um, raptors can see very well, so its slow pacing means something must be up with it when it's in the generator shed. Uh, apparently it is injured. Remember, uh, Gennaro shot that one. Uh, now what, or sorry, Muldoon shot that one. Now, when Gennaro enters the shed, he believes the raptor is injured on 311. And this may be for one or two or perhaps both <laughs> reasons. First, we know that Muldoon shot the leg of one raptor that was just poking its nose into the drainage pipe uh, that he was hiding in in page 307. And second, the raptor may have hurt itself when it leapt down into the sub-basement of the maintenance shed 20 feet down onto concrete. Or both things may have injured it. In any case, the raptor in the sub-basement is identified as injured and could be the same one Muldoon shot, and perhaps giving Gennaro a fair chance to escape. Localities. We have the waterfall. Tim walks on a muddy path back into the sunshine to see the sleeping tyrannosaur. When the waterfall stops, they find themselves, quote, near the top in the cave-like indentation filled with machinery looking down on page 300. 
the control room. Muldoon opened the blinds and let the light in on page 300. Here we, we finally get some reconciliation that there's these huge windows overlooking the, a beautiful view of the park, but also that the control room is so dark all the time. Well, apparently there are some big blinds that are very good at keeping the light out. Uh, so there's one mystery solved. The visitor center. Muldoon went through the door to control and hurried down the hall toward his office and enters a room marked Animal Supervisor to pick up the gray shoulder launcher and unlocks a panel behind his desk containing six cylinders and six canisters on page 303. On the tour earlier, we passed a series of rooms labeled Park Warden, Guest Services, General Manager, all in the Authorized Personnel section of the Visitor Center on page 97, and Mr. Robert Muldoon is introduced as the Park Warden on page 98. We're told Muldoon was offered the position of Game Warden on page 146, and we can see that he knows where the ammo is kept and unlocks it, meaning this is likely his office, but it's strange that it's labeled differently than what we were told earlier. Uh, is this an oversight labeled... Is it, is it an oversight that the park warden office is labeled animal supervisor, or is this yet another room and Muldoon just has the access and keys to it, and it's where weapons are stored? I imagine he'd be the only person with access to these weapons, uh, but nonetheless, outside the office, they, they run along, quote, the hallway looking down over the balcony to the path leading toward the maintenance shed on page 303, and they reach the ground floor and go through the glass doors of the visitor center to be confronted by three raptors. Muffled explosions and screaming can be heard during the raptor attack on page 305. And behind the visitor center was a stack of drainage pipes, which Muldoon is able to wedge himself into for protection. Malcolm's suite in the hotel, or in the lodge. Muldoon orders everyone to go back to the lodge, and this is where uh, it's reinforced, and this is where Mal Malcolm is uh, tied up. Uh, he, Sattler, Harding, Hammond are, are still in this lodge, and over a radio they can hear the tinny screaming and muffled explosions from the visitor center. The maintenance shed. It's too dark to see on page 307, filled with cool air and cavernous dimensions, extending two floors below. There's a catwalk. There's a corrugated metal floor more than 10 yards from the door to the basement staircase where the generators are. With even the auxiliary power burned out, the maintenance shed is pitch black. It has a catwalk comprised of a metal grill, on page 309 we're told, and stairs descending to the floor below. There are narrow, steep stairs, probably inaccessible to raptors, and there's a metal railing and almost vertical steps. Apparently it goes down 20 feet. When Gennaro arrives, it's still dark, and Arnold's shoe is in the doorway, which Gennaro trips on, on page 310. There's a pathway to the generator shed. There's a planted pathway leading toward the visitor center. We recall from episode 24, Control, that beyond the generator shed, which goes two stories below ground, smells of gas, and usually has harsh electric lights, there is a big goat enclosure with 50 to 60 goats. Apparently the raptors didn't care to get into that this morning. And then the bamboo grove that leads to the raptor pen. Nobody's going to be going all the way up there today, I guess. Uh, for now, there's a soft mist all over the place. Allusions and references, we get Florence, Italy. Malcolm cites Florence as the most important city in the world on page 312 at a point in history. This is an entirely untrue, though perhaps um, that's more specific to the Western world? I'm not sure. In terms of allusions, we also have Newton. Sir Isaac Newton was an English mathematician, physicist, astronomer, alchemist, and a theologian who was described as a, quote, natural philosopher from the 17th century. And he was a key figure in the Enlightenment. And Newton is heralded by Malcolm as one of the first scientists publishing works on mathematics in the 1660s that all science beginning with Newton operated believing that, quote, if you knew enough, you could predict anything on page 158. And then later Malcolm suggests that since the days of Newton and Descartes, quote, science has explicitly offered us the vision of total control and, quote, claimed the power to eventually control everything through its understanding of natural laws on 313. 
And of course, here he also, as there by that quote, also evoked René Descartes. René Descartes was a French philosopher from the 17th century, was evoked by Malcolm as from a moment in history where science begins to offer the illusion of total control. By understanding the natural laws, we can have total dominion. It was believed on page 313. Descartes is often regarded as the first thinker to emphasize the use of reason to develop the natural sciences. For him, philosophy was a thinking system that embodied all knowledge. Heisenberg. Malcolm evokes Heisenberg on 158 and also on 313 as well. These two, these two moments in the book on 158 and 313 are obviously linked thematically and uh, certainly by, by what Malcolm has to say. Uh, Malcolm evokes Heisenberg, suggesting that chaos theory implies very large consequences for human life, much larger than Heisenberg's principle. Malcolm feels this principle is academic, philosophical, whereas chaos theory concerns everyday life. Werner Heisenberg is a, or was a 20th century German theoretical physicist and one of the main pioneers of the theory of quantum mechanics. Malcolm again evokes him while elaborating on chaos theory. Science was hoped to give mankind control of the world, but Heisenberg's uncertainty principle set limits on what can be known about the subatomic world. That things cannot be known definitely, that things are always uncertain, and chaos theory proves that unpredictability is built into our daily lives. This refers to Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics, which set a limit to the accuracy with which the values for certain pairs of physical quantities of a particle, such as, such as its position x and momentum p, can be predicted from initial conditions. But I don't think that's going to be on the quiz, so we don't need to worry about that. Godel, Kurt Godel, was a 20th century logician, a mathematician and philosopher who had an immense impact on scientific and philosophical thinking. His theorem of Completeness is what Malcolm is evoking, suggesting that this philosophically set limits to mathematics, which is the language of science. And the, the last thing in this weird rant is the boy who jumps off a building believing he can fly. I didn't know if this was just something he was saying or, or what was going on here, um, but I looked it up. So on February 12th, 1979, the New York Times published an article called Boy Who Tried to Fly, quote, Like Superman, Dies. Uh, he was four years old and had seen the Superman movie a few days earlier and uh, jumped out the seventh floor window of his grandmother's Brooklyn apartment. And the quote in the book is, as foolish and as misguided as the child who jumps off a building because he believes he can fly. That's kind of a harsh comment, <laughs> considering this was a, a four-year-old. But it was in the news. It must have been... It must have entered the, the cultural zeitgeist at some point. But uh, that's a sad story and a strange thing to bring up. Or he just suggests that it's a bad idea or it would be a foolish idea. Maybe he's not evoking a real-life thing, but maybe he is. I don't know. Stylistic techniques. We have lots of italics being used. First is uh, Lex here. Quote, good. He practically ate us on page 300. Emphasizes Lex. Again, she's taken this quite personally and is willing to let it be known she has no love lost for the Tyrannosaur. Then with the thunk of a solenoid releasing, the door marked Maint 04 swung slowly open on page 300. The italics suggest that this isn't a word, but a sound that's being heard. This isn't, as you might guess, an example of onomatopoeia because thunk isn't a word. It is only informally used as an alternative to thud or the past tense of to think. <laughs> so it's not quite onomatopoeia. Quote, Arnold was thinking that was strange when he suddenly realized that that was normal in italics on page 302. Here, the italics show something perhaps ironic, that the strange thing was actually the normal thing. It makes it stick out like, oh yeah, sort of emphasis. And so that's a good use of italics. Um, that's it, everybody. Now move!
Page 303 orders Muldoon now that he is in charge. The emphasis shows that he's done giving orders, now it's time to follow them. In Malcolm's berating of Hammond's dream, he italicizes a few moments to add an extra emphasis on his argument, showing his passionate displeasure with everything Hammond has done. Simple, he mocks, knowing that what Hammond overlooked in his processes here at Jurassic Park were anything but. He calls out the chief geneticist who, quote, cannot be bothered with such details as what the thing is called, let alone what it is, in italics on page 305. And to Malcolm, this demonstrates Wu's ignorant attitude towards learning anything about the dinosaurs that he is cloning, let alone believing they understand them enough to control or contain them safely. And page 307, Hammond says, it was simple. Uh, he insists, after Malcolm's essay on earning discipline through scientific discovery, conceding he's obviously missed the point. The emphasis on was, it was simple, shows us exactly what Malcolm is describing, that no effort had to be invested in buying this power, and therefore no discipline was required to wield it. In italics on Patreon 9, we get, it had jumped down. Yes, Arnold discovers that the raptor was fully capable of reaching him, even if the stairs were narrow. But these italics are about as chilling a moment as there is. Relief and safety shattered away. All those things in Maslow's hierarchy of needs are ripped away in a thump. And then he's on his back with the raptor's claws digging into him. So that's excellent italics. The italics only continued to imbue terror. Quote, something heavy was pressing on his chest. It was impossible to breathe. And he realized the animal was standing on top of him. On page 309, it's too dark. He can't see, but the realization that he's under the animal that's attacking him is another chilling shock and an apt use of italics. And then in italics, we have like to live dangerously. Not really on page 310, all in italics. Recalls Gennaro, the italics indicate that this sentence is uh, a memory, something in his internal monologue. Kill it on page 311 is Gennaro's instincts reacting to fight or flight. Here's a wounded raptor that's sure to kill him. And he's got a moment to end the fight right now. It was biting him, in italics on 311. It's Gennaro's realization that he's being actively predated by the raptor. It's biting him, bringing him that much closer to death. He's panicking, and these italics demonstrate his mental state. Colons. That did it. Colon. The final step in putting the park back in order, on page 298. The colon here separates two parts of this single sentence, when the second part further explains the first part. Quote, Arnold was surprised to see that it was now blinking yellow, ox power low, on page 299. Here, the colon introduces a following thought and revelation that the auxiliary power is low. Quote, it made perfect sense, colon. The auxiliary generator fired up first, and it was used to turn on the main generator because it took a heavy charge to start the main power generator on page 302. Here, the colon introduces the thought that follows. Warning, colon. Fence status on page 302 is a report where the colon introduces what type of warning is being signaled. And then we get into many colons all doing the same thing. But scientific power is like inherited wealth, colon, attained without discipline on page 306. There's no mastery, colon, old scientists are ignored. They are all trying to do the same thing, colon, to do something big and to do it fast. Here the colons are all just, um, you know, presenting a point. And uh, Crichton seems to rely on it quite a bit when he's uh, making his arguments here. It's interesting that, he, yeah, he turns to the colon so often. Semicolons. <laughs> he uses these too. Uh, the foliage here was very dense. Semicolon. He couldn't see more than six or seven feet ahead of him on page 310. And here we get an observation, and the semicolon joins it with an explanation of what that observation indicates to Gennaro. In a similar act, we get, quote, Gennaro was strong. Semicolon. He heaved up, knocking the raptor away and rolled off across the concrete. On page 311. Another time we get a statement followed by the elaboration of what that statement means, or the implications of that statement. We have some rhetorical questions. Then why did it go wrong? On page 307 questions Malcolm of Hammond in a final effort to make his point, but it also comes as a grand zinger 
<laughs> don't you think? I can hear Jeff Goldblum delivering this line in an emphatic whisper, dripping with contempt, even though the line isn't in the film. But it would have been great if it were. Ellipses. But he could drown in that position. Ellipsis. On page 299, says Henry Wu. Here, the ellipsis is suggesting that something needs to be done, but it's being left unsaid. This is Wu being very passive-aggressive. It reads like somebody else has to go do something about this. Perhaps Wu is intimidated by Muldoon. It's just Wu being passive-aggressive here. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, but it ain't going to be him. Quote, he thought... Perhaps it was just a routine status check on the auxiliary power. Perhaps a check on the fuel tank levels or the battery charge ellipsis on page 299. And here the ellipsis omits the thoughts that Arnold continues to consider as they trail off, indicating that he's thinking of other things too. He's considering lots of possibilities, but we don't have to read them all. And so thank you very much, Crichton. That's good. Quote, how incompetent you are to do the things that you so frivolously call simple. Ellipsis. Dear God. Ellipsis. On page 306. Here the ellipsis shows a pause but not an omission. In Malcolm's castigation of Hammond, this can be attributed to his incredible pain and dopey behavior after being administered morphine. He sort of trails away after exerting what little energy he had. Quote, he sank back coughing, we're told next, reaffirming the, you know, this reading of the text. Quote, if he could get to the stairs and move down to the floor below, ellipsis on page 309, this ellipsis suggests that there's more to this sentence and that this sentence is Arnold making a plan. And so it's a textual way to show that Arnold is thinking on the fly, taking risks and making it up as he goes. This adds to the tension. It's good use of the tools available. Quote, the stairs were just a few feet away, another few steps, ellipsis on page 309, as the resolution of reaching the steps is delayed, contributing to the suspense. And the ellipsis continues to be used to indicate that someone is searching in the dark, where the end of a sentence marks finding something in the dark, but the ellipsis means that they haven't found it yet. Hence, just a few more steps, and he would see it, even in this dim light ellipsis. So that's good. Poetic iconicity. All right. <laughs> this is uh, a new term. Here we go. Quote, the thundering sheet of water thinned became a trickle. Ellipsis on page 300. And this ellipsis sort of becomes a trickle too. It's neat, eh? It's describing the trickling water dripping. And then we get the dot, dot, dot that visually resembles the thing that it's describing. I don't know what this was called. And so the literary term, I, I went out there and asked about it. Um, like you can picture poems perhaps where the stanzas are placed in, on the page in a certain way and the line breaks are intentionally published with spaces and alignments that add further symbolic meaning to the written word. And this is kind of like that. I, I asked around and the best word I got was poetic iconicity. Another sort of description is, is syntactic symbolism. <laughs> There's a Virginia Tufts artful sentences for a discussion with examples, but basically it's when uh, the form and structure of the sentence mimics what it represents. Whether it's syntactic symbolism or poetic iconicity, I don't know. Uh, but now that I've, I've found these terms, I'm starting to find examples of it more often. <laughs> Here again in this chapter, I find another element which may represent this poetic iconicity. Uh, check this out. Gennaro shivered. And then in italics, it says pack behavior. And pack behavior is italicized as if the words were shivering Maybe. Maybe I'm reading that wrong. I don't know. Um, is this another example of the literal formal text becoming symbolic of the intended meaning? Do you believe that the words pack behavior expressed in italics are meant to represent the words shivering like the shiver Gennaro feels? Nonetheless, perhaps it's just italics. And it, it's, nonetheless, perhaps it's just italics. I don't know. But um, a neat term, a neat thing to keep a, your eye on. 
M-Dash is, quote, in fact, the implications were just beginning to hit him, M-Dash, on page 302. In this instance, the M-Dash represents an interruption, but it also ends his train of thought, raising some tension and suspense, too. So that's good. Quote, the first screen would come up and he would press, M-Dash, on page 307, is an interruption of Wu's thoughts as the radio blurts out. Quote, he hadn't seen what the other end of the pipe was like, M-Dash. He'd backed in too quickly, M-Dash, and he couldn't see now, on page 308. And here the M-Dash is operating like parentheses. Quote, he looked frantically for something, anything, to use as a weapon. And the anything is uh, surrounded by M-Dashes. On page 311, the M-Dashes serve as parentheses, ensuring we read this concurrently with the sentence, showing that Gennaro has multiple thoughts and concerns rushing him to take action. Exclamations. He was there, exclamation, on page 309. This exclaims that Arnold has reached the stairs in the maintenance shed, which should, according to his quickly cobbled-together plan of escape, separate him from the raptor attack. So this is reaching safety and something he'd be thrilled about. The exclamation-worthy moment. Damn! Exclamation on 310. Exclaims Gennaro, realizing that he had just had his radio, had just used it, but now that he needs it, through some contrivance of plot, he has left it behind. That exclamation makes this much more tense, I guess, and it raises the stakes. I don't know why Gennaro left the radio behind. Capitalization. We have aux power low. A-U-X-P-W-R-L-O-W on 299. This is capitalized, but not because it is a label, as it has been a common practice throughout this novel. In this case, this is a totally new font, and a font size consistent of when Crichton displays text from a computer screen. It, it, and it's a smaller than the regular font that the rest of the novel is published with. In this case, it's an abbreviation that aux stands for auxiliary, PWR stands for power, and low is not abbreviated. And then we have aux power fail in capitals as well on page 299. Uh, in, is, this is the next signal that blinks, and it is also presented in the same font as described above. And maint 04 is capitalized, as usual, with labels, as mentioned earlier in the novel. We know that this isn't just words in the novel, it's a verbatim label from the real world of the novel, depicted to us through capitalization. We have some foreshadowing, quote, and that wasn't a good idea. In fact, the implications were just beginning to hit him, M-Dash, on page 302. This is excellent. This raises tension and makes us wonder, and there's something environmental about everyone being in the dark, which raises the stakes so much more as well. So it's uh, an interesting, inciting incident that uh, we all feel quite a bit of dread about. Tension, and after saving Arnold from being ganged up on by the raptors, two of the carnivores turned their attention to Muldoon and Gennaro on page 304. Quote, they fanned out as they came closer. In the distance, somewhere near the lodge, he heard screams. Gennaro said, this could be a disaster. Load, Muldoon said. By delaying a conclusion to the action here, by stepping away from what's happening next, this unresolved conflict contributes to the tension we readers feel. Perhaps this is better described as suspense, but however you say it, it's this combination of high stakes, high tension, and unresolved conflicts in the storytelling that makes this a definitive thriller. And, you know, the definition of a thriller. Thrillers are dark, high stakes, and suspenseful plot-driven stories. The thriller genre often includes unexpected plot twists, a wicked bad guy, and page-turning tension. The second definition is when Michael Jackson dance battles zombies while Vincent Price pricks the hairs on the back of your neck. That's a thriller, too. Uh, but it continues. Muldoon runs from the raptors, but they're chasing him, and he has nowhere to go and no time to figure it out. And then we leave them again. The, the, the story, the narrative jumps to another character. So this tension is extended and the suspense is thickened. We don't know what's going to happen to these people. And we get a raptor encroaching upon John Arnold's mission, where he's entering into the pitch black maintenance shed to start up the generators, but a raptor finds him. And then we're left with a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? <laughs> well, we know what happens. Now, uh, then it flips to Muldoon, who's wedged himself in a drainage pipe for protection. But the tension doesn't go down because he didn't inspect the far end. He's worried that a raptor might sneak in the back and take a, a bite out of his hindquarters on page 308. 
So Crichton has employed ellipses to show Arnold is making things up as he goes, showing that his thoughts are incomplete, just as his plan is incomplete, a textual way to show that Arnold is thinking on the fly, taking risks, and making it up as he goes. And this adds to the tension as well. And once the raptor is upon Arnold, the pacing ramps way up. Things happen very fast, which is scary too, on page 309. He's quickly on his back. He's realizing what's happened to him too late. The claws are already digging into him before he realizes the raptor has caught him. And then, you know, obviously, getting caught by raptors leads to horror as well. Baldoon said, quote, five hours. Those animals could be out. And then from somewhere in the distance, they heard a scream on page 302. Here, Crichton has masterfully raised the stakes, the tension, and then immediately after leading the, the reader to the edge of a cliff, quote, the screams from somewhere in the distance are the push over the edge right into the terror and thrill of what's to come now that the raptors are free. Shortly thereafter, Arnold has been eaten. Gennaro enters the generator's shed, climbs into the basement and can't see the dark sensing forward. Then he hears a snarl. Then he feels a mysterious liquid dripping on him. Then realizes that liquid is blood. Then sees a bloody raptor. And then it leaps on him. All these elements graduate from one moment to another before the attack is delivered. And this moment also offers greater horror to the consequences of earlier scenes and the plot of the novel. We know this raptor is easily dispatched of Arnold, and now he's just as easily going to dispatch of Gennaro. And also that Gennaro feels like their last hope for restoring power to the island. Nobody may wind up being safe from this. When Gennaro discovers that the raptor is injured, he has a fleeting moment to kill it. He's desperate to find a weapon to help him, but when he turns back, the raptor is gone on page 311. The suspense and tension continues as we fear for Gennaro's life too. And then a snarl echoes in the darkness. So we got a you know, terrific suspense and pacing. Quote, Do you have any idea how unlikely it is that you or any of us would get off this island alive? On page 314. is an astonishing way to enter into an act break. <laughs> As the park is falling apart all around them, the mathematician, who made all the right calculations, challenges them to guess what their odds are. It's hard to put the book down now, isn't it? We have some quotable moments. I'm not sure what else you would call lines like these, other than zingers. <laughs> Here's Muldoon. But what are you going to do to my animals? says Hammond. That's not really the question, Mr. Hammond. The question is, what are they going to do to us? On page 303. Which you can imagine would come right out of a movie trailer with a close shot of Muldoon's mouth and cold eyes. And then there's uh, another one from Malcolm. All changes are like death. You can't see the other side until you are there. And that got put into the Fallen Kingdom movie. And then, yeah, the final one. Do you have any idea how unlikely it is that you or any of us will get off this island alive? I like that he says that to Hammond, because Hammond, uh... He's not long for this world. Colloquialisms. Quote, and because you stand on the shoulders of giants, you can accomplish something quickly. On page 306, says Malcolm. And this is an expression that employs the concept that one can see further from a higher perspective. Therefore, if you were standing, you can only see so far. Whereas if you're standing on the shoulder of a giant, you can see much, much further. This concept of greater vision is metaphorically adapted into the intellectual field that, quote, using the understanding gained by major thinkers who have gone before can help you, quote, make intellectual progress. It means to build upon previous discoveries and theoretically make greater advancements due to the already great advancements that came before you. And I think most people know this, but who am I to pass up on covering a metaphor and a colloquialism in this podcast? Uh, metaphors. You know what's wrong with scientific power? It's a form of inherited wealth. And you know what assholes congenitally rich people are. It never fails. 
on page 306, says Malcolm, here he's specifically conflating scientific power and financial power together, arguing that they're both misused by those who inherit that power. It's Malcolm's argument that those who inherit wealth are less responsible with it, use it more frivolously, having gained it by birthright as opposed to by earning that power. Malcolm argues that this lack of discipline or respect for the power that comes with financial power is just like scientific power. That the next generation is given that power, and he believes those who inherit scientific power are less responsible with it and use it more frivolously, having gained it off the shoulders of geniuses as opposed to earning it. What do you think? It may be far easier for us to imagine ourselves wielding scientific powers and today technological powers all willy-nilly than necessarily wielding inherited generational wealth. But I imagine Malcolm is evoking our stereotypical image of a legacy student who attends an Ivy League school and by nepotism is circulated into prestigious businesses, law firms, and Wall Street-esque institutions. And how these stereotypes come by money and use it frivolously should, by Malcolm's perspective, be considered how modern scientists come by scientific knowledge and how they use it frivolously. Quote, the person who kills is the person who has no discipline, no restraint, and who has purchased his power in the form of a Saturday night special, on page 307. Saturday night special is a colloquial term for an inexpensive, compact, small caliber handgun. They're usually quickly acquired for a singular criminal purpose, almost like a disposable camera. In other words, they're used without respect to do disrespectful things. And this is what Malcolm accuses Hammond of doing, purchasing power with ill intentions to do nothing good. Similes, quote, it was now dripping like a tap that wasn't completely turned off on page 300, which confers the properties of a very known image, a dripping faucet, to this waterfall. And we can clearly imagine this. And so this is a very effective piece of imagery, even if it's lacking in creativity. One rapper, quote, simply exploded, the upper part of the torso flying into the air, blood spattering like a burst tomato on the walls of the building, on page 304. And we can supposedly all imagine what a burst tomato looks like, splattering red and wet on a wall. So this is effective imagery. Quote, it sounds like a war out there, on page 305, says Malcolm, of the screaming and explosions they hear over the radio. A fine piece of imagery, we can imagine the chaos it evokes, and messy, scary, and devastating imagery we associate with an explosive battle. Quote, but scientific power is like inherited wealth, attained without discipline, on page 306. This is interesting because Malcolm makes the simile directly, and then he explains himself almost in an essay. So, is it a good simile? If he has to explain himself, perhaps not. The key individual who should understand this simile, John Hammond, confesses, I haven't got a clue, on page 307, after having it spelled out for him. So this fails, even if we as readers have come to understand Malcolm's perspective. Quote, he groped like a blind man until he realized it was futile, on page 307, describes John Arnold. We can imagine having no sight and swinging our hands into the darkness to find something to touch. We can picture it. So this is, I guess, a good piece of imagery. Quote, He'd backed himself into the largest drainage pipe, scrambling like a poor bastard, on page 307, we're told of Muldoon. This simile shouldn't be taken too literally. The high tension and desperation of Muldoon's perspective means he's just blurting out rude colloquialisms to represent his situation. In this case, poor bastard relates the simile to someone in an unfortunate position, which is almost good enough to be taken literally, but I'm confident it's just the drunken soccer hooligan in Muldoon that's starting to cuss now that the stakes are high and the competition is fierce. The stakes being life or death and the competition being man-killing velociraptors. Quote, something dripped on his shoulder, his bare arm. It was warm, like water, on page 311. Experience is genero. There is a comma in here which separates it was warm, comma, like water. And I think that comma negates this being a simile. The warmth of water would be a strange thing to signify in a simile, but rather 
that comma negates the simile and encourages us to read this as two adjectives of, this, of the same drip. That it's both warm and like water. So it's maybe not a simile here, but, but it could have been written more clearly. <sighs> Analogies. Quote, my colleague and I determined several years ago that it was possible to clone the DNA of an extinct animal and to grow it. That seemed to us a wonderful idea. It was a kind of time travel. The only time travel in the world, on page 305, says Hammond. Here, bringing the past to the present represents a type of time travel, though we usually imagine going from the present to the past. Perhaps this is another concept of Hammond's forward thinking. I, maybe I'm getting too cute with this interpretation, but the analogy here is that cloning extinct DNA is a type of time travel, or at least it is to Hammond's vision. Quote, whatever kind of power you want, black belt in karate, what is interesting about this process is that by the time someone has acquired the ability to kill with his bare hands, he has also matured to the point where he won't use it unwisely, on page 306. And then also, quote, a karate master does not kill people with his bare hands. He does not lose his temper and kill his wife. The person who kills is a person who has no discipline, no restraint, and who has purchased his power in the form of a Saturday night special, on page 307. Here, power is considered in a physical, harmful, perhaps relatable analogy of physical combat, in this case via martial arts. We can relate to how much discipline is required to earn a black belt, whether we've earned one ourselves or not. And recall the Karate Kid came out in 1984, Karate Kid 2 in 1986, and the third installment in 1989. This franchise was a cultural phenomenon all about the differences between acquiring martial arts skills with and without discipline and respect. It's perhaps not a coincidence that this is an analogy that Crichton is using in this novel. Cliffhanger. The opening moments of this chapter show a confusing and concerning countdown clock that seems to suggest that there's going to be a system failure, and they don't understand why. What the hell is going on? asks Arnold ending the scene on 299. That's a great cliffhanger, as we segue away to Tim and Lex. Never mind that, Grant said. Come and see what I've found, on page 300, says Grant has, and we're left wondering, what is it that he's found? That's another cliffhanger. And then we segue back to Arnold in the control room. Quote, the raptor jerked his head, and Donald Gennaro was yanked off his feet, and he fell, on 311, as we leave Gennaro in the maintenance shed's sub-basement, presumably meeting the same fate as John Arnold did before him. But we don't know, it just leaves it like that. Eat my words. As Arnold grins in triumph, he congratulates himself on bringing the park, quote, completely under control again. And then he says, hey, what's that blinking on your screen? <laughs> Which turns out to be the auxiliary power failing and returning the park into chaos. This is a moment where Arnold is forced to eat his words, though he doesn't quite apologize or admit that he's wrong. So it's not quite that either. But ultimately, this is when someone must admit that they are wrong after saying something, and now they look foolish and hubris. John Arnold grins as the Tyrannosaur is tranquilized. The grin is that hubris we were talking about earlier in episode 45, The Park, where we discussed that hubris is in action in this book, but that it's not fully realized because Arnold, nor any of the other characters, are written as tragic heroes. He does not realize the error of his ways and evoke from us the audience Aristotelian pity. But this grin is Crichton borrowing elements from a tragic story. This grin is emblematic of hubris. These elements are present, even if they're not realized to their full potential. And man, Arnold is quickly revealing himself to be the greatest hubris offender. Despite what's already been cataloged from earlier chapters, now he's taunting the velociraptors. Too bad, buddy, taunts Arnold, once he escapes down the narrow stairway of the maintenance shed, because he believes he's found safety away from the raptor. Then, chillingly, he's pounced upon and presumably eviscerated, as is the way. <laughs> He doesn't realize the error of his ways, so his life hasn't been a proper Aristotelian tragedy, but his character flaw, his belief in the system has failed him, and he's punished for it. And that's hubris pure and simple. 
wielding power. This is an interesting subject to get into and one that I think answers a bit of a question that came up with my terrific guest in episode 30, Control with Adam and Matt. Um, this whole combativeness from Malcolm that Jurassic Park's scientists' great problem was that they stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as they could. Yeah, that, that's how science works. It's the whole reason we say you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It means use the accomplishments that are already achieved to do greater things next. And perhaps that's because Malcolm's monologue in the film barely scratches the surface of the comments he actually makes in the novel. So let's connect the dots here a little bit, starting with episode one, Introduction. Uh, the beginning of the novel tells us about how the biotech industry is rushed for the sake of profit, and that science is different today than it was in the good old days, like the time of Galileo and Newton, for example, because there are more people doing it. The research is thoughtless or frivolous. Think pale trout, for an example. And the work is uncontrolled. There is no watchdogs found among scientists themselves. Scientists are no more ethical in pursuing science than the capitalists pursuing science. This argument is largely attributable to Crichton himself, though perhaps it's just narrative world-building. This segues into Malcolm's discussion of thin intelligence from episode 49, Aviary, which is a flaw with Western training, expanding on the thoughtless or frivolous concept, and the now-famous line, so they are focused on whether they can do something, they never stop to ask if they should do something, on 284. The introduction places us in a world where Jurassic Park is possible, Aviary populates that world with people just like us, who could make Jurassic Park a reality, and this chapter here shows that it's our human nature to wield power without responsibility. This is Crichton, via Malcolm, outlining the manifesto for something very akin to anti-patriarchal, an anti-capitalist, an anti-Western ideology. It's not necessarily pro-Marxism or pro-communism or in favor of Eastern ideologies, it doesn't recommend any viable replacements. Only that the present hegemonic structures are friv frivolous and intelligent. The greater purpose of most of these ambitions are merely for profits or entertainment, hardly ever for the betterment of mankind. Malcolm even uses the word frivolous specifically, connecting Crichton's messaging from earlier in the novel, the only two times frivolous is used in the novel. First in the introduction on page Roman numeral 9, and now on page 306, and as has been argued before, Hammond the character is the personification of the biotech industry that Crichton is railing against. A second very distinct connection is the concept of the watchdog, the ones who oversee that things are not being done frivolously, or at least focusing on whether or not they should do something, not whether or not they could do something. In the introduction, Crichton laments that the biotechnology revolution has, quote, no watchdogs found among the scientists themselves, on page Roman numeral 10. Whereas in this chapter, Malcolm argues that this process has a built-in control, that the process provides a maturity, thereby one who gains power gains the discipline to not misuse that power. The watchdog is in you. So Malcolm is condemning science. Accessibility, progress, and advancements are, are happening so fast that the, quote, built-in watchdog isn't developing. And what's worse, these advancements are being pursued by capitalists who buy the power like a commodity, like a Saturday night special, and don't even conceive that any discipline might be necessary, on page 307. This is Malcolm's argument in the novel, that kids these days don't have the discipline like we used to. That's why the world is so messed up. But in this case, kids these days are capitalists investing in the biotechnology industry. And I think the rest of that metaphor holds up. All right, some further discussion. Let's do the math. The auxiliary power comes on at 5.14 a.m. and lasts until there is 0% fuel remaining at 5.53 a.m. 
The math says that that's four hours and 39 minutes. I don't know if they started at 100% auxiliary fuel or not, but we know that the last 20% of the fuel was consumed between 9.11 a.m. and 9.53 a.m. That's only 42 minutes. 20% in 42 minutes is approximately, if we're going to do the math, it's about 10% every 20 minutes, okay? So extrapolating that math, you don't get four hours and 39 minutes of fuel. 10% per 20 minutes, extrapolated up to 100% is 10 times 10% and 10 times 20 minutes. And that's 200 minutes or three hours and 20 minutes. So the math doesn't quite hold up there, but we can probably explain this. It's like the park was consuming fuel at an inconsistent rate throughout the morning. Recall that the, there are three cutouts in the fences where there wouldn't have been power circulating until after they were repaired by Muldoon and his teams. Once those repairs were made and all the fences were fully operational, again, surely the power consumption reached its height. Now, I imagine the 10,000 volts circulating through the 50 miles of 12-foot fences is a terrific energy drain. All right, some more math. We're told there are eight consequential raptors that were being detained in the raptor pen. These are the ones who were bred by Dr. Wu and escaped and have acquired the knowledge that people are easy to kill. These are the most dangerous raptors in the park, and there are eight of them. On page 304, Muldoon and Gennaro explode one, leaving seven remaining. On page 307, Muldoon shoots the leg of another, though perhaps not with the rocket launcher because it's just shot and not totally exploded. And I think this is the raptor that winds up in the maintenance shed going after Arnold. So we're down to seven raptors. <laughs> Malcolm's history of the Western world and paradigm shifts. Control is a Western attitude dating back 500 years in Florence, Italy. The attempt to control dates its origins back to the emergence of Western attitudes dating back to 500 years in Florence, Italy on 312, we're told. The basic idea of science, that there was a new way to look at reality, that it was objective, that it did not depend on your beliefs or your nationality, that it was rational. The idea that it was fresh and exciting back then. It offered promise and hope for the future, and it swept away the old medieval system, which was hundreds of years old. The medieval world of feudal politics and religious dogma and hateful superstitions fell before science. But in truth, this was because the medieval world didn't really work anymore. It didn't work economically, it didn't work intellectually, and it didn't fit the new world that was emerging, says Malcolm on 312. Now science is the belief system that is hundreds of years old. And like the medieval system before it, science is starting not to fit the world anymore. Science has attained so much power that its practical limits begin to be apparent. At the same time, the great intellectual justification of science has vanished. Ever since Newton and Descartes, science has explicitly offered us the vision of total control. Science has claimed the power to eventually control everything through its understanding of natural laws. But in the 20th century, that claim has been shattered beyond repair. And so the grand vision of science, hundreds of years old, the dream of total control has died. Science has always said that it may not know everything now, but it will know eventually. But now we see that it isn't true. It is the idle boast and so there's this argument that we're entering into a new paradigm. We are witnessing the end of the scientific era. Science, like our outmoded systems, is destroying itself. As it gains power, it proves itself incapable of handling the power. Because things are going very fast now. Fifty years ago, everyone was gaga over the atomic bomb. That was power. No one could imagine anything more. Yet, a bare decade after the bomb, we began to have genetic power. And genetic power is far more potent than atomic power. So this is the new paradigm that we're entering into. And Malcolm says, change is coming. And then he concludes, quote, all major changes are like death. You can't see the other side until you are there. So this is the paradigm shift that we're looking at. Uh, timeline. It just took him an hour to feel it. 
We're told on 299, says Muldoon, suggesting that the Tyrannosaur falls asleep one hour after being tranquilized. Muldoon isn't being correct here. We know that Grant leaves the Dilophosaurus behind at 9.20 a.m. at 2.86, and the next scene is Muldoon and Gennaro shooting the Big Rex, and that's approximately 9.30. However, the scene we're in presently occurs right around 9.53, as the auxiliary power runs out on page 301. It can't be one hour since 9.20, and also be 9.53 a.m., or as Grant indicated, nearly 10 on page 295. So, Muldoon is incorrect. It didn't take the Tyrannosaur an hour to feel it. But yes, Muldoon did in fact strike the Big Rex with the dart. So, good for him, and especially good for Timmy, I guess. Show, don't tell. Crichton tries to show that Henry Wu is frantic with tension. He's pacing the room. He's touching the consoles and monitors. He's in constant movement. But I guess Crichton wasn't convinced this was explanatory enough, and he just comes out and says it. Quote, he was almost frantic with tension, on page 307. So, instead of show, don't tell, he does a bit of both. And we have some more Crichton tropes. Now, we were told that the system had a bunch of problems earlier in the novel, including the security system, which controlled all the security card-operated doors, cut out whenever main power was lost, and did not come back online with auxiliary power. The security program only ran with main power. So this foreshadows indirectly that when main power is lost, auxiliary power doesn't operate the security systems. Crichton had that set up much earlier. That's neat, eh? And this detail will cause problems later when Grant and the kids go to use doors in the visitor center to escape the raptors, but the main power has been restored, no longer on auxiliary, and suddenly they'll require security cards again. Uh, We have some more contrivances in plot. Again, I don't enjoy these things, but here we go. The highly contrived electrical door. Quote, and then there was a thunk of a solenoid releasing, and the door swung slowly open on page 300. I didn't and don't know what a solenoid is, But I looked into it. It is a device comprised of a coil wire and a plunger, and when it's introduced to an electrical current, a magnetic field draws the plunger in. In this case, it would be a latch for electrical locking and unlocking. Tim can hear a solenoid releasing when the power goes out. Apparently, it makes a thunk, and this specific word solenoid and the electrical qualities it requires to perform are important. This is important because a deadbolt lock which a regular, less contrived door would use, would not be suddenly opened if the power goes out. This highly contrived electrical door will unlatch and swing open, reuniting Grant and the kids once the power goes out. (sighs) Next, we're told that, quote, backup power doesn't generate enough amperage to power the electrified fences, so they were automatically kept off. On page 303, my initial reaction was, well, shouldn't they have noticed this while they were working on the three cutouts in the park fences earlier? But that problem was before they reset the system to clear the memory from the modems. So that's, I guess, not a problem. The pitch black generator shed. So John Arnold enters the sub-basement of the generator building, and it's too dark to see. To solve that problem, he leaves his shoe in the door to keep it ajar, permitting just enough light for him to navigate the catwalk and narrow stairs. Sounds good. And it's just really unfortunate that a raptor catches him by virtue of that door being propped open by his shoe. But, like, if there were any character on the island who is definitely carrying either matches or a lighter, it's the chain-smoking John Arnold. He's got fire in his pocket, guaranteed. He could have done this in the dark using his lighter as a light source and been safely behind a closed door. Maybe we could rationalize that he didn't realize a raptor would come looking for him, that using daylight was the first thing that came to mind and he just did it without thinking too much about it, but the whole hindsight is twenty twenty sort of thing. <sighs> Any other character would be stuck with no other choice, but Arnold lights another cigarette like 12 times in this book. He has a lighter. He had light. He had a torch he could have seen <laughs> in the dark if he needed to. Uh, Gennaro's time at the gen- generator shed. So Ellie is listening to the radio, and Wu and Arnold are chatting with Muldoon when Gennaro chirps in, I'm here, on page 309. 
They ask where he is, and he tells them, over the radio, I'm going to the maintenance building, wish me luck, on page 310. He reaches the maintenance building and now realizes he had left the radio behind, only a few paragraphs later. That's tough. Plus, Gennaro, who admits to, quote, not know where to go, is able to prop the door open wide, when Arnold, who presumably would know where to go, didn't know how to prop the door open without sacrificing his shoe. Just more strange moments in the back end of this novel as the action rolls along. It's too bad. So, and then we can compare this to the film. So much, so much of this part of the novel is memorable and familiar because it was adapted into the movie very well. And we have the whole line, what's so great about discovery from the film? Ian Malcolm says, if I may, if I may. Um, I'll tell you the, the problem with scientific power that you're, that you're using here. It didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you, you read what others had done and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourself, so you, you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could. And before you even knew it, you've, you've patented it and you've packaged it and you slapped it on a plastic lunchbox and now you're selling it and you want to sell it. Well, and Hammond says, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody has ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied over whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Really famous scene. We all, all love that part. What are some other things that are in this chapter? We get Arnold's scene in the maintenance shed. Uh, obviously, what happens in the book is quite different. <laughs> but uh, all we get is the, 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 the only evidence we have that Arnold was ever in the maintenance shed was his bloody arm falling on Sattler at the end. Uh, Ellie and Muldoon are running around with the raptors. This path between the visitor center and the maintenance shed is in the middle of the jungle when Muldoon starts uh, preparing his, his shotgun. We get lots of Malcolm's ranting and raving. That's kind of fun uh, out of this chapter that winds up in the movie, just like we talked about. The Saturday night special, just like a kid who found his dad's gun. That's all really good. The raptors opening doors. Here they're in the book. They don't quite use the door knobs, but they do get through all the doors without too much trouble. Whereas in the, in the film, it's astonishing when they learn and figure out how to open that door. Uh, claws clicking on the metal. That's something that happens in the catwalk. And we also get that in the kitchen. And we get that in, in the generator shed as well when the raptors are walking along. So we get that clicking. That's the same. The wild, humid pathway to the generator shed is well described in this novel and it shows up in the film. And all major changes are like death. You can't see what's on the other side until you're there is once again adapted into the Fallen Kingdom. So they use the, that line in this part of the book, even in the latest Jurassic World installments. And our island layout, we learn some more about the, the, the layout of everything on this thing. So, so this Maint 04 room, the waterfalls and the muddy path, are, they bother me. I always believe that the room was about 20 feet up the rock wall, which is, I think, where it is. Once the water turns off, that's what they see. And the Tyrannosaur has just poked its head through the water, and it was at that Tyrannosaur's head level. So it's a 50-foot falls. The door is at 20 feet. So for this roadway and tunnel to attach to the door, they would have to, like, bore through solid rock, like, into an escarpment to create a subterranean roadway through the, through the rock and the ground for this locality behind the waterfalls. It, it, it's so, so bizarre. It's just absolutely insane. Uh, and it was big enough to, to drive a golf cart through. I just hate this waterfall and its complications. All right, I want to sign up today. Thank you so much to Lindsay Kinsella for, for coming on the show, reaching out and, uh, and wanting to talk about dinosaurs and things like that. I love it. 
And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book or add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, be a guest on the show, and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book or these contrived electrical doors. We're also not the book all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry, and the worst of them all, The King Street Papers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park Cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also not that too. Until next time.